For the evening, Tim Elliott, protecting my city, the rooftops. And with me, he's faster than a speeding bullet. He's able to leap tall buildings. He can podcast in a single bound. It's get that green rock away from me, Brian Hughes. Hello, hello. Is that Bud Collier at all to you, or you know, because he was that guy that could just go. This looks like a job for Superman. You know. Okay, give us your best. Give us your best, Clark Kent. Well, that was it. This looks like a job for Superman. That's that's pretty good. All right. That's pretty good. <laughs> Whew. All right, Brian. So what are we doing today? Oh, wait, I'm Brian. <laughs> you're, you're Brian. Yeah. Don't, don't go out. Yeah. Don't go split crazy on me now. Ah, uh, narf. Sorry. I, I just had a birthday, so I'm a little uh, tweaky. Everybody's been hitting me up like I'm, well, on my birthday, I get a post on Facebook for AARP membership. I mean, they didn't waste any time at all. I did too. Vanu kept telling me to look into that so I could start getting discounts. And then uh, one of my friends sits there and is telling me, oh, don't go with them. Go with these guys. They're, they, they're horrible. And I, I, I don't know. I hadn't heard of anybody aside from AARP. So it was like, okay. But uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll think about that. How you doing? I'm good. Now, you know what? I what? can't remember if I introduced myself or not. Well, introduce yourself. You did because, well, no, you, 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 that's right. You were I talking was, about I was, Batman. I was being, yeah, that was, I was being Batman. Don't tell anybody I'm Batman, <laughs> which I just did. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm Tim Elliott, the, uh, the, uh, the rich playboy to my alter ego, the Dark Knight. And I'm Brian Hughes, the over the hill, um, idiot <laughs> compared to <laughs> Superman, the man of steel, which, you just like the Superman from Earth 2, you know, a little gray at the temples, a little older. Yeah, well, I, I like the one in Generations better, but he's definitely more tragic. Oh, you want that, uh, yeah, well, you can have the ponytail. Oh, no, 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 no ponytail. No ponytail, no long hair, no fake mullet or whatever it is. Good golly. No, no, it's not a mullet. It's not a mullet. <laughs> it's not a tuma. Not a mullet. <laughs> well, uh, dear, re- uh, dear readers... <laughs> dear readers, dear <laughs> listeners, man, I guess I'm tired. Uh, That's all right. You can cut it out. <laughs> if, you, if you can't tell by our little playful banter, we're going to be covering some Superman and Batman tonight. So, Brian, why don't you tell us what you will be telling us about? Okay. Well, you know, first, I want to say this. When I was a little boy um, and I was reading comics, and as you call, I started reading comics at the age of four. Um, you know, I... I was limited on what I got by what was showing up at the local market, the local drugstore, you know, whatever. And I did get my collection, you know, a, a couple of odd issues here and there of world's finest Superman family, Batman family, 
and Justice League along with the regular, you know, other books that I could find. And the thing that, you know, always struck me is that, you know, back in those days, and this is we're talking about the the early to mid 70s, is that Superman and Batman were best buds. They were best friends. I mean, there was an issue of world finest that even as a kid, even as a, a very, very young boy, I thought, you know, they're just like five seconds away from kissing each other. They were such good friends, you know. Um, <laughs> that being said, uh, in 1986, two series came out that forever changed that dynamic. And that was uh, The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller and Man of Steel by John Byrne. Obviously, we're not going to cover The Dark Knight Returns here. We are, however, covering Man of Steel, Volume 1, Number 3. And this is uh, a new retelling of the first meeting between Superman and Batman. As much as I, you know, really enjoyed all this, I've, I've enjoyed the whole, you know, the, the revamp of Superman. I enjoyed a lot of the stuff that we got after Crisis. That was one thing, though, that, that I was never happy about, is that Superman and Batman were not friends along those lines anymore and i i never i never blamed john byrne for it looking you know as i was getting ready to do all my research for this i uh, i got onto burn robotics and uh came across a quote that i thought was you know really really interesting if you don't mind me going into this now no no, no go ahead Okay, the quote says this. uh, People are often surprised when I tell them that that the definitive Superman for me is the one from the 50s and early 60s, the one with all the barnacles still attached, Supergirl, Crypto, Candor, and about a million tons of kryptonite in myriad colors, Superboy, the Legion, palling around with Batman, etc., etc. I didn't get rid of all that stuff and more because I didn't like it, but because my mandate was to reinvent the character as if that first issue of Man of Steel was really the starting point. Clean slate. All right. And then here's another um, uh, quote from Byrne that uh, I don't know how fitting it is for this, but I thought it was funny. His quote goes like this. Hitler did a lot of terrible things, but he does not get proper credit for the good that he did. After all, he did kill Hitler. (laughs) I never thought of it that way. I probably won't ever again. Anyway. Yeah, but so, <laughs> so the the book that we're covering here is Man of Steel number three, and uh, it is uh, came out in November nineteen eighty six, with the cover price of seventy five cents or a dollar to you Canucks, or forty p to those in the UK. So Andy Leyland, I don't know if that's a discount or what, but uh, boy, they sure had some different denominations. Anyway, um, executive editor was Dick Giordano. Cover artist was John Byrne with inks by Dick Giordano's staff. Writer, John Byrne. Penciler, John Byrne. Inkers, again, Dick Giordano's staff. Colorist, Tom Zuko. Letterer, John Costanza. Editor, Andrew Helfer. Now, I said Dick Giordano's staff, but uh, I can't say that that's the official word. The official word in the book, as well as anywhere else that you read, is that it was Dick Giordano. But it has, you know, become more and more apparent that... uh, it was not him and it was his staff. And, and you know, there's there's things we can comment about as we get into the book. But uh, before we do that, let's take a look at November 1986 because it will look like a busy month. Um, in November 1986, John Byrne also worked on Batman number 401. Now, that was 
the magpie issue of Batman called A Bird in the Hand, and he basically did the cover of that. Uh, the, the work on the inside was a different artist altogether. Uh, there was a reprint of Doomsday Squad number four, and he did a new cover for that, if I remember properly. Uh, Legends number one hit the stands, and he did the, did the uh, cover art and the interior art on that. Marvel Fanfare number 29 uh, came out that month, but it should be noted that that probably sat in Al's drawer for quite a while before it actually got to see print. And he went ahead and put that out after the Hulk uh, Burns work on the Hulk series was done, yeah. uh, because that was a, a, a piece of the of that of that Hulk series. I don't think I think it was intended for Marvel fanfare all along, but it could easily have been printed in the Hulk, and that was the the all book with pages, all, of, all, all splash, splash pages. pages, and it was the the story with Hamill and Anvil Hammer and Anvil, excuse me, and. Um, I don't. I, I do. I want to say the name of the bad guy, or would that be considered a spoiler? Thirty years later. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a scourge story, uh, which whenever Byrne got to handle the scourge, he did a really, really good job. I think he did, actually did a better job of handling the scourge than a lot of other uh, writers or artists did. Uh, even more better than Mark Grunewald did. It, at, at you know, uh, in in my opinion when Grunewald wrapped up the whole Scourge storyline. I, I don't think he did the character as much justice as he, as he did the beginnings. That was, that was a, a nice premise, but they, I think they, when they decided to end it, they didn't know what to do with it. So Right, right. Uh, of course, he also did two issues of Man of Steel because it was coming out biweekly. So he had Man of Steel number three, Man of Steel number four. Um, then there was uh, the entries that he had his work on on the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition that would have been volume two, and that was Sift to Sunspot, so that was issue 12. And then he did the cover of Vigilante number 35. He was busy. So, yeah, he was was busy. But then again, you know, the thing is, Man of Steel was something that he had worked on quite a bit before it got put out. So he did the work on Man of Steel before he did the work on Legends. So he probably finished it a lot earlier. Uh, he was usually a good four months ahead of the books that were coming out. And he was always on time. He he never missed a deadline except for one time, and that wasn't his fault. So yeah. Well, as we stated, he was he was he was a pretty quick artist. He could produce his work fairly quickly. Yeah. This, if I'm not mistaken, this came out about the tail end of Dark Knight, correct? At issue three of Dark Knight, and this came out about the same time, or issue four, or they they're kind of concurrent. I think they're kind of concurrent because uh, if I remember, uh, Dark Knight came out at the beginning of summer or at the end of spring. Yeah, it kind of struck in '86, and yeah, they, yeah, I think they cross cross the streams a little bit. Yeah, because from from my research, this apparently is the first appearance of post Crisis Batman. Is it yeah. the story? And yeah, this is that's correct. And the th the thing is, when when Miller was writing Dark Knight Returns, he took um, a lot of um, input from John Byrne. That he had, it was Burns' idea to make Robin a girl. And see, I didn't know that. I just knew that he had consulted with him on a number of things. Now, I'll tell you this right now. Um, I, I love The Dark Knight Returns, but I hate it too. Because of that and this right here is the reason why we're getting the movie that we're getting next month. Those, those two stories in that particular moment in time started us on a path where we got something that uh, you know, it, it's what, what basically it, it threw in, you know, you know, when you have a diamond 
and a diamond cutter comes in and they hit it at the right facet to split the diamond to make it its perfect piece. You already had a perfect diamond in Superman. All right. I mean, that's, that's what he was. He was a perfect diamond. And in 1986, when Frank Miller put out book four, he split that diamond so that writers after him would come in and write Superman differently than he'd been written. So that Mark Wade would make Superman an, an unsure Superman, you know, and I'm talking about um, Kingdom Come. Mm-hmm. You know, if that had been the Superman that we had read growing up, or even the John Byrne Superman that we had read, he would never have that uncertainty. He would never have walked away from Metropolis. He would never, you know, it's just not the Superman. Now, obviously, in the story, you've got the death of Lois Lane. You've got all that. But, you know, like our grumblings on the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises, Bruce's parents died and he committed his life to fighting criminals, you know, making sure that nobody goes through what he went through, you know. The death of a girlfriend someone he loves, another person that he loves is not going to make him stop fighting crime for eight years. And, and, but in, in the same vein, in Nolan's, in Nolan's uh, verse, but yeah, it's Nolan's verse, but you know, it's just that is that he so innately did not know the character that he sat there and wrote him taking eight years off. And again, you know, going back to this and my, my kingdom come reference, it's just, Superman, the Superman that we know would not have done that. He would not have abandoned, you know, Metropolis or the world because Lois Lane died or because, you know, Magog had, you know, gotten the favor of the people. He didn't care what people think. He just does what he does because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, true. Because that's what his values taught him. The values that he was taught, the values that were inbred in him is what made him Superman. It's not the events that happened to him. It's what he was taught. But, you know, the writers put that aside because it makes it to them a more interesting take or more interesting story to sit there and make Superman not necessarily the bad guy, but someone other than the Superman we are used to seeing. And that way lies madness. <laughs> well, the Dark Knight only did it not only set the tone to, to this day for Batman, yeah. for every Batman story to follow it. And as you said, also, it changes the way they were writing Superman to the point where he was Superman became more, as you say, fallible, mm-hmm. maybe unsure. Batman became uh, unconquerable. He became in, infallible. Yeah. If that's the right word I'm using to where he you see a little bit of that in this story that he is become then he, he's he became the 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 mad thinker. He he was 25 steps ahead of everybody. So he had a solution. He'd already thought it up for everything, every possible contingency. And that's a little bit of my reaction to the way Batman's written so that he's, and this is a funny thing. And I know it's all about writing storytelling and Batman outside his book is unbeatable in his book. He can have the snot kicked out of him to the point where, to the, to the point of dying. And then he'll rally himself and come back. Right. He's in any other book. He's he's ahead of everybody, you know. He's already thought it out. He can't he can't be defeated. He's and he's the 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 one the one who doesn't get frazzled, doesn't rattle. He he has a, a plan for everything. So that's and that I understand that's just the way it's you know he has to be able to to have limits in his own book so that he can be come close to being defeated and then he has to come back at the end. But yeah, that's that that was my that I don't that's what I don't like about Batman. And, well, 
I think I think we're going to get a big change real, real soon in the handling of Superman and probably the handling of Batman, uh, especially after after this movie. But not just because of that, but what happened last Friday. I uh, got news on my birthday that the U.S. Court of Appeals has denied the estates of Siegel and Schuster the rights to Superman, which they've been fighting for for a, no, a good number of years. Yeah, I thought that already settled. It, you know, we thought it had been, but the the estates of, of the of the of Siegel and Schuster had still been fighting their quote unquote never ending battle mm-hmm. to get the rights back, but they were slammed down in the courts of appeals. And as I understand it, it was their final appeal. And the Court of Appeals, you know, basically said, no, you guys have gotten enough over the years. You've gotten a lot over the years. And, of course, everybody else is sitting there saying, yeah, it's about time you guys, you know, went and, and you know, earned your money yourself instead of living off your, <laughs> your dead dad or, or whoever. But, you know, the thing is, is that one of the one of the reasons why it seemed like Superman had taken, at least as I understood it, was Superman had taken a backseat to Batman all these past couple of years wasn't just because of the, the you know, the, the things that happened after The Dark Knight Returns, but because DC was preparing itself for the possibility of losing Superman and not being able to to produce him anymore. Because if the Siegel and Shishas had been given the rights back, the first thing they'd say is, okay, you guys can still publish Superman, but you're going to have to pay us 50%, which would not make him lucrative for anybody to publish. Yeah. Uh, and if anybody else aside from DC tried to publish him, you lose all the extra things, you know, the quote-unquote barnacles that John Byrne talked about. You can't sit there and do all that because while Siegel and Schuster created a lot of things, they didn't create everything that was part of the Superman myth. Well, he couldn't exist with all the other DC heroes. He'd have to be in his own... Exactly. He'd either have to be in his own universe or whatever. I mean, you know, the only thing that that might have worked is if, and I, I would hate to see it, was if Disney had bought Superman. Then he could take him into the Marvel universe. Yeah, but that golly, you know, I mean, that still wouldn't work. It just wouldn't no, work. No, it wouldn't work. Talk I mean, about we, fan uproar. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And could you imagine you'd have to reboot the entire Marvel universe? You'd have to reboot the entire DC universe, which they're going to do anyway. They're doing that anyway. So, I mean, they basically, yeah. Marvel's rebooted themselves to the point where I'm basically not reading Marvel anymore. So I thought yeah, that would never happen. But it's, what you're talking about with Superman is similar to what Marvel, how they're treating the FF and to a certain extent the X-Men because they don't own those rights to make those well, they're still making movies. X-Men books, but they don't make any FF books right now at all, do they? They don't. FF's gone, but they are but they kind of downplay it because anything they don't own the rights to that they can throw into their movies, they downplay yeah. because they don't have the rights. And they're, I think they're doing that. I don't know if they're hoping that eventually Fox will either sell the rights back to them. But, of course, with the success of Deadpool, that just strengthens their hold on the uh, X-Universe. So I think Marvel ever, is ever going to get that back. I, I no, I think that um, they'll, you know, it's at some point some cooler heads are going to prevail between Marvel and Fox, and they're going to sit there and say, if we work together, we'll make more money. They may do a deal like they did with Spider Man, that we're going to put exactly. him in our, our movies, exactly. but he can also be in your movie. Yes, exactly. You know, and and, and that's you just got to hope that that's going to happen at some point, and, and that you know there's going to be that executive at one place or another. That's going to extend that olive branch and find a way to make it work. I hope you, know, they, you just, you just got to show them, look, here's dollar signs. 
here's how to get them. That's it, that's the only way you can appeal to them. If if somebody crunches the numbers and realizes that that's that's a lucrative deal, then that's the way they're going to go because they're businessmen. They're not thinking of the fans. They're not thinking about the characters. They're thinking about the bottom line. Yeah, the bottom line. And well, you know, the thing is, there's animosity right now between the two because Marvel wants it back, Disney wants it back, and Fox is saying, "Oh no, 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 no. We're we're you know we want it." So, you know. Fox goes ahead and makes the movies. Marvel's not going to promote it in any way. So they're not, you know, they're not promoting any action figures or anything. They've stopped publishing the Fantastic Four comic book, which is a crime. That's, that's, that's insane. You know, I mean, right now there's no Fantastic Four movies coming out. And while that's out on video right now, it's already going to the $5 rack. Oh yeah. It's, you know, and like you said, it's going to be on Netflix pretty soon. It's going to be on some, form of streaming media and it's going to wind up on commercial television within less than a year. You possibly by Christmas, we'll probably see it on FX, you know? Yeah. yeah. The thing um, that really irks me the most is the fact that they, they can't use the term mutant. So now Marvel has, at least the Marvel TV and film division has decided, well, we're just going to substitute in humans for mutant. Right. And I don't, that's one thing I don't like about agents of shield. That's, that's become their stand in for that. And it's just, you know, I want me. I mean, I you know, I've, I've, I've always liked the term metahuman, but that's more of a DC term. It's a DC thing, yeah. Or enhanced human or whatever whatever they call them. They don't, you know. How, however, in the DC universe, they had used the term mutant before. And, of course, that was Marv Wolfman writing in the Teen Titans, referring to Jericho as, as a mutant. And I guess any other of uh, the Deathstroke's uh, children. What did they call them on the Flash TV show? Are they... Metahumans or enhanced humans or I think they're calling them metahumans. Something like that, superpowered humans, yeah. something yeah. something like that. I, I think I think they've gone with meta. Yeah. Anyway, should we uh should I go ahead and do the synopsis on this one? Yeah, go ahead and uh, let's, let's okay. dive in. Yeah, we're on uh Man of Steel number three, and here's our synopsis. A thug runs down an alleyway. He is kicked from above by Batman, who has stopped the thug in order to get a lead on his quest to track down the villainous Magpie. He questions the aptly named Bull on where, to, on where Magpie plans to strike next. Bull is able to catch Batman off guard by throwing trash from the alley in Batman's face. He cleans off the trash, but after he throws out his bat line in an attempt to go after Bull, his bat line, with Batman attached, is yanked off into the sky by none other than Superman. The Man of Steel greets Batman by calling him an outlaw and telling him that they'll be headed to see the police. Batman quickly escapes Superman by simply letting go of the rope. Batman reveals himself to Superman again and tells him that he cannot be touched, for if Superman comes within the force field set about him, a bomb will explode, killing an innocent person. Batman goes on to tell Superman that he recognizes the differences between the two of them and that they would probably be at odds. He then goes on to tell Superman about Magpie, and her killing spree that goes along with her stealing rare and precious items. Meanwhile, Magpie is now upset that her thug, Bull, after escaping from Batman, comes straight to her lair, instead of misleading the Dark Knight down a bunch of blind alleys. She then paralyzes Bull with a fast-acting paralysis venom, and then kills him in a fashion that would make Bugs Bunny call his copyright lawyers if they just had, didn't both happen to be produced by Warner Brothers. Superman's hearing picks up Bull's death, and he leads Batman to Magpie's lair, the derelict Gotham Museum of Antiquities. Magpie stands by Bull's dead body and laughs maniacally as Superman smashes through the wall of the museum. One of Magpie's remaining thugs tries to shoot Superman with predictable results while another one tries to get away. Of course, he's stopped by the Batman. Now Batman turns his attention to Magpie, but she drops a vial of acidic gas. Not acidic, but acidic. 
okay, that eats everything it touches. So naturally, Superman sucks up all the gas and quickly, quickly flies high into the atmosphere or above the atmosphere to release the gas in the cold vacuum of space where it becomes harmless icy crystals. When he gets back to Gotham, he finds that Magpie's escaped and that Batman is taking some fibers to the lab in the back of his car for examination. He determines that the fibers are at least 5,000 years old. He then leads Superman to the one place where those fibers could have come from, another museum. Batman and Superman quickly find Magpie there and remove her headdress, causing her to break down. After turning Magpie over to the police, Superman concedes to Batman that Gotham deserves a different touch than Metropolis does, and that Batman appears to be the best man for the job. But there's still the matter of the bomb set to kill an innocent person. Batman reveals that the bomb was in his utility belt all along and hands it over to Superman. As Superman flies off, Batman muses that in another reality, he may have called him friend. The end. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I noticed some, some interesting things in here on, on my reread of this that uh, didn't I didn't catch 30 years ago. That uh, and, and one thing is, Superman caused Bull's death. Superman, just because he let him go? No, because, yeah, because he grabbed Batman and Bull got away. That's why Bull died. He goes to Magpie and then she does the happy birthday trick on him. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you can. I don't think you can put that on on Superman. I, I think if so, you, well, if he had got away from Batman on his own, say Batman hadn't caught up up to him, to him, and he went back to Magpie, are you saying then it's Batman's fault that he's dead? Uh, I'd say this is Superman's fault. Now, again, you know, what would Batman have done if Superman hadn't shown up? Would he he would have questioned the guy? Uh, would he have taken him to the police? No, because he doesn't have a friendly relationship with the police at this point in time. So he probably ultimately would have let the guy go and let, had him lead him back to Magpie's lair. Would he have gotten in in time to prevent Magpie from doing the happy birthday trick? I don't know. Well, he's well. actually he wouldn't because if you read on page four, bottom panel, he says, too bad for Bull. He's quite athletic in his own way. He's, he's not going to like having to get around on crutches for dot, dot, dot. I read that as Batman. He's already said that you have to sometimes set an example to some of these guys. Yeah. I read that as he's fixed to go and cripple Bull for life. Not just put him in the hospital, but he's going to kneecap him or do something so that he's going to be uh, hobbling around for the rest of his life. Now, he might have still hobbled over to Magpies and Batman still might have followed him. But this is a this is a, a cruel <laughs> – well, not a cruel. This is a – I think it's showing the extreme between Batman and Superman. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's just still one of those things that stood out to me that, you know, I, I don't know. What do you all think? Did, uh, did Superman cause Bull to get killed or would Bull have been killed probably anyway? Um, I do, I do think it's interesting. If, if you notice Bull, um, on, uh, page two, he's got the cauliflower ear of a guy that spent a long, a lot of time as a grappler, like in a wrestling ring, or he's gotten into a lot of bar fights. Probably that, or maybe from <laughs> Batman just gave it to him. He reminds me a little of um, what's Superman's friend that works in the docks? Bimbo? Bimbo, Bimbo, yeah. Bimbo? Yeah. Uh, just kind of a, just this typical dock worker who's, you know, been, he's a, he's a muscle. He's, he's, he's a muscle for hire. So I'm sure he's, he's uh, taken his fair share of uh, blows to the head. Yeah. Now, how are you reading this? Are you looking at this from a, uh... A digital copy, or do you? Have I am a, looking at a digital copy. Yes. Yeah, me too. And and I, I, you know, the thing is, is that 
the digital copying that they did of this uh, this thing, I think, actually did a little bit of a disservice to me on on the art because I remember the art looking a lot better with that that ink flourish on it rather than this digital print. It makes the color color separation so contrasting, and it makes the the inks look uh, not as muddy as they did on the original uh, paper versions. No, I think I, mean, the, I, I think the inks are very sharp and clear. The, the, I do yeah. agree the colors uh, they're very saturated and very bright. They do pop quite a bit, especially in the page two where you've got that pink kind of a, a lavender background behind yeah. Batman. And where it says One Night in Gotham. And I, every time I read that, I, I hear the song in my head, One Night in Bangkok. I don't know why, but <laughs> that's what goes off in my head when I read that. Yeah, it's funny. I always thought the guy that did that One Night in Bangkok sounds like uh, Mike Greenberg from uh, Mike and Mike in the Morning. But I don't know if you listen to any of that that's sports sports radio. So, you know, no, no big deal. I mean, sports aren't. Uh... I know it sounds a lot like exercise. <laughs> no, I have no problem with exercise. I'm just not a, I'm not a sports guy. Yeah. Now looking at the the very first page though, you know, the you got the the typical nine panel Grid, display yeah. there with the you know swooping down into the city and seeing you know, seeing um bull running down the alley. And I you know, the first thing that I noticed, especially on this uh, this digital copy, is how green those panties wearing are. Those are yeah, and they it's the way they've always used to draw them, they're very flared at the bottom too. Yeah, and then it, that was a burn, a burn thing. I mean, it's a lot better than it was in the the X Men books where he was still doing bell bottoms. Yeah, these are these are close to being bell bottoms, and they, they're always drawn to look like jeans or dungarees or something. But yeah, I don't think they're supposed to be like just cotton pants. But I guess you know, back when you were only doing so many colors, and if they were blue, that I don't think that that would have matched too well with uh, the blue of Batman's cowl, which. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, you know, a character with a yellow costume. It looks great on the page. Yeah, it's like the purple pants. You sit there and you start thinking about it, you know, and like, how would that look in real life? And it looked kind of silly. And this is one of those things I'm, I'm seeing and just noticing the, 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 you know, yeah, that's not right. Well, I did. I will say as a kid, I did wear colored tough skins and you could get jeans that were in green and blue and kind of a. a yeah, but that was when your mother was dressing you. That's true. When you when you actually had a choice like he does here, I mean he's old enough that he can make his own choices on his clothes. <laughs> You'd hope that he'd be you know wearing something just a little bit well, more. It doesn't it doesn't look like fashion is high on his list. I mean no it, no it does. His list is is making it through the day and you know when can I get my next beer? That's that's what's on his list. But yeah, now that shot of Batman there, I just on on page two, I just I really really love when I first saw that way back when, I was just like that is how Batman should be. Huge, imposing, scary as hell. It would only be nicer because I, I love when Byrne does Batman when he's in just black and gray. There's no no blue highlights. Right. Just all black. I love that. It looks great. Well, and that's, see, that's the thing. I, I'm i sitting there fighting with myself on this, and I'm going to have to go and pull out my old copies and look at it because that's the way I kind of remembered it. I don't remember the, the blue and the cape being this blue. You yeah, know, it, be, is, it seems more color. blackish. Yeah, back it could then. be done to the, or even if it was, you replace the blue with the gray because he's yeah. got he does have the old style bat symbol. He doesn't have the the doesn't have the amber oval behind it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he he paid close attention to where Batman was in his, uh, you know, beginnings. Right. 
and, and we'll, we'll point out some more of that as we get on into the into the story. But um, yeah, see, I I, I want to go back and, and find that to look at that because I just remember it being blacker, and I I think that you know it's just many years later. The other thing I find interesting here is is whenever you see a character that's in a mask, like a full face mask, like or almost a half mask like Batman's got. Or, a, you know, with a domino mask, it's real easy to see the face of the person behind it. Mm-hmm. But when you have a mask like Batman, it's always difficult to sit there and see that face. But I can see Bruce Wayne's face because it's almost like he drew the whole face and then put the mask over it, you know? I can see that. Yeah. Well, I mean, really, Batman, I think if you were take it to its logic, he would have more of a Spider-Man type mask. I think he would more of a like a, a Black Panther mask. It would cover his whole face. He could still talk through it. Yeah. Uh, and he that way, you know, one he wouldn't he wants to blend in more and get rid of the the shiny uh, yellow belt, you know, make that black. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it does look like it's sub- the the color of the yellow is subdued on this belt, though, doesn't it? It's not. It's not. A, I don't think it's supposed to be like a brass or a gist. But it's it's definitely not glossy. <laughs> no, and his ears are his ears are a little uh, Neil Adams ears, but because at this stage he would have the shorter ears, wouldn't he? Or is that two sixties Batman? And I don't mean a TV show. No. I mean 60s. well, I mean this is this is more of the forties, and in the forties he had pretty high ears. Yeah, at the very beginning of the forties he had high, very high ears. In fact, if you look on page three, and that middle panel on the right, that is you know like a, a Bob Kane kind of shot there. The way the ears, the way the ears go up, and it, you know, it's really dark. I really like that shot there. Yeah, it, that's a little more burn like where he would draw him all in. All in black. And to your point, if you look at the panel above it and the one on the opposite page, page four at the bottom, the way he's done the the way the folds in the cloth, that looks very Bob Kane. Where it's very thick. Uh, It's more pronounced on page four in the bottom. And throughout the whole book, he's kind of done uh, the way he's drawn the cape. It's very Bob Kane-like. Yeah, going back to page three, though. Bull getting the trash in Batman's face. With a splot. Yeah, a splot. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, this is one of those things that goes to show you that, you know, Batman is very young in his career, that someone could actually get garbage in his face like that. You know, just a common thug would be able to to do that and, you know, actually seem to get away. Well, he didn't have time to activate his anti-garbage in the face device. <laughs> true, true. You know, the, the, on page four, you know, you look at the top of that page, that left panel, it looks like the coloring, and, and, and the coloring really suffered back then, I guess, because you see how it goes from green to brown, and it's just like, that's just supposed to be a glop of garbage and whatnot. Yeah, it looks like spinach and coffee grounds and old paper. Yeah, I don't know but they could only do like one color at a time. They couldn't, you know, separate and put, you know, different flecks in there or whatnot. Uh, Today they'd be have they'd have motion blur. They'd have all the worms crawling things. around. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Hyper realistic and and in the middle, page four in the middle, where you say he's throwing his line, I get the impression that's his line from where he flew down on to bull. That it's still attached. He didn't throw. He hadn't thrown it again. I thought that he the one he had left behind. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I missed that. I think he's just grabbing it and then and I guess I guess Superman snapped it. Although, no, he's swinging well, no, it, he, but he throws he, he it again. Threw it, he threw another line. Yeah. He's, he's swinging, swinging off of one line. He throws another one. Yeah. He must go through an awful lot of batarangs every night. Yeah, you, you, you would assume. You think you think of the uh, the uh, souvenir market in Gotham? You know, every bat street corner. Rope, get your own bat rope. 
batarangs, you know, kids are scouring the rooftops, pulling all these things off. Uh, man, how many lawsuits would he get from a kid putting out his eye with a batarang? Or I wonder if he makes them biodegradable. Maybe he's a very green superhero. Yeah. You know, they're all made out of uh, recycled plastic or compost or old tires or something like that. Yeah. So we get on page five, the top of page five, and this is a, a really beautiful shot. And I get the feeling that he was going for something almost in like a, a Dick Sprang era shot with the gothic buildings and, you know, everything kind of swirling about the, the rooftops around and then Superman in the moonlight. It's a nice perspective shot. It's Superman's face is a little, I didn't notice that until just looking at it. His face is a little lacking detail. Yeah. Yeah. And, and down on the, the, the panel below that, the bottom left, his, his face has got that. And I, I refer to it as kind of burn flatness. Mm-hmm. When he's doing that that upper angle looking down, he, he kind of gets a flatness to the faces because he can't think of a way of putting in the, the forced perspective, which we'll see on the next page here going. But, yeah, I, lo- I love the way he's handling the cape because, you, you, like you said, on that, that first panel, it's got a very Bob Kane look to the way the, the way the cape is flared out. And then, of course, when you see Superman swooping down in that, that bottom right panel, just the way the cape has gone around both sides of his waist is just gorgeous. Yeah, Byrne has always seemed to went out of his way to pay attention to the way that cape would actually function as a cape. Yeah. And this this is a perfect example in this uh, lower panel on page five. The way that's how that would. It would wrap around his body. And I love the shot on the next page where he's hovering. Yes. The perspective shot down. It really gives you a sense of height and a Superman of kind of where he is. Yeah, you remember when we did that Fantastic Four book a couple months back? Yeah, the uh, unpublished work. Yeah, and and I was complaining about the cars down in the street. And, you know, what, what Byrne is – of course, this is nighttime, and that helps a lot. So you got the street lights and everything, but everything is uniform. Everything is the same color. You're far enough away that you're not going to get the – obviously, without enough light to get the difference in color and everything – so it makes it real easy to sit there and put this in, you know, one perspective. I mean, it's almost like with if Superman wasn't there, you'd have an almost monochrome kind of vision. Well, it, I think it's on purpose because if you look at the yeah. the panel across where he's grabbing Batman, the of course he's got him Superman silhouette against the, the moon, but the the buildings are very colorful. Now yes. the other one, it, it's it is almost a monochromatic, so that Superman really pops in the center of that panel with his yep. red cape and his blue. Uh, Blue undies, <laughs> red undies, red undies, blue yeah. blue uh, jammies. Yeah. Now this this panel though, at the top right corner of page six, is he jogging? Because <laughs> I was saying at first he's got that he's turned around. He's in the air. He's going what? Where did he go? You it know, look like he's jogging in there. And it and it all it's like well, what would he do? Would he just swoop or whatever? And no, it looks like he's jogging. He's gone out for a run. <laughs> Maybe that's how he. Uh... <laughs> But then, when he doesn't, he's in, when he's in midair. Yeah, and then of course on the bottom panel, you got that beautiful shot of the of the half cape coming up, swooping up, looking really gorgeous. Yeah. And you you see here when you're looking at Superman's face though, from from the left side, the way he's got the brow furrowed and and things there, it actually adds dimension and makes the face pop out, mm-hmm. which he didn't wasn't able to get on the previous page where it looked flat. Yeah, and that's just probably the way he's yeah well he's one he's dealing with a little bit of a larger area yeah but batman with his spawn like cape that's 
now looks like it's about eight yards of fabric. And then, okay, so the, on page seven at the top, Christopher Reeve is coming swooping in because that's what the, that's the face that I see there. On the one where he's coming in where Batman's holding him back? Yeah. I don't see that. Reeves? It's it's that smirk, that kind of Christopher yeah. Reeve smirk yeah, that I he's got on. Yeah, I can see that. But that's... On, yeah, I can see that, but I don't. I, I wouldn't have thought. I wouldn't have thought Reeves right off the bat, just from the way he looked. Not as obvious as the way. Um, who's the guy that uh, Frank? Uh, what's his name? It draws Superman exactly like Reeves. Oh um, yeah, Gary Frank. Frank. Yeah, but that's that's definitely photo referencing to the point of creepiness. That's like don't don't do that. You know don't. But uh, I love the way Batman's cape again, you know, you've got a good Bob Kane reference there on the left side, but then on the right side, it's billowing down. Yeah, Batman's cape kind of does whatever it needs to do. It's long when it needs to be long. It can be short. It can flare out. It almost has a mind of its own. You think it's it's almost it's almost like the black costume in Spider-Man. It's almost sentient. They can do whatever. Yeah, Batman's trunks look a little funky there, though. They're a little high waisted. Yeah, high waisted and stretched out. (laughs) It's like he just hitched his pants up. Yeah. Well, maybe it's because he just turned on his uh, anti-Superman device. Now, I, I like the way, you know, they represent Superman's vision here. And this is something I always like that Byrne does. Whenever he's got, like, energy around something or whatever, and he kind of gives it that light sheen. Yeah. The field around it. And it's got uh, kind of a, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but that's um, that's pretty cool. I like that. Well, my question is force field. Okay, if it's invisible, I get that. If it's intangible, it's not really a force field because that kind of takes the force out of it. Uh, uh, the, the thing at the met, at the airport, now I may be wrong, so if I am, correct me, that's not a force field. That may be some kind of a magnetic field, but it's not a not a force field the way I understand a force field. Well, I mean, I mean, it is a force field, but not by what we've always thought of them as. We always thought of a force field as something that prevented penetration. You know, like Superman's got that electrical chemical aura, you know, the the burn Superman that acts as a force field that prevents him from getting hurt or dirty or whatever. Yeah. Um, we ourselves have our own little force field that our body has that keeps, you know, dirt and stuff off of us to a certain point. And that's where Byrne got, got you know, took this idea and ran with when well, he found, when he found that, that out. That was, yeah, that was his way of explaining why his costume never got damaged as opposed to being some kind of Kryptonian fabric. Yeah. And explains why his, his cloak or his cape will take damage because it's not close to him. Yeah. But I would just, and, a, I just, just me being a, a nitpicky fan, I would have chose to call it an energy field or something else, you know, come up with another techie name, some more techno babble. That's when to call it a force field. Yeah. Well, th- this one, I mean, it's just like, like he said, the force fields used in mer- airport metal detectors and so, you know, basically it's something that's sensing, you know, something pushing through it. So something using force to get through is what I'm assuming. But still, it, you know, again, the, you know, this is going on the, the hyper techno babble that was very popular of the day. But I liked it. I liked it an awful lot, especially when they were when they were describing Superman's powers, because I think that there's a, a subtlety about the way that they handled Superman's powers that wasn't demonstrated by every writer properly and that's why i think they abandoned it ultimately to go to the way that they're handling it you know or the way they had been handling it within the last you know decade because you know when superman was mentally 
incapacitated. And I'll use the the Legends miniseries and the the, the issues of Superman where Darkseid had Superman under his thrall. You know, he had Superman uh, reprogrammed to be his soldier, you know. And because Superman's mind was so splintered and so um, confused, he never had full control over his powers. He didn't have his full invulnerability. He didn't know who he was. But, you know, and, and he had that one issue where he went up against the Fearsome Five, and more importantly, uh, who was the big block guy on the Fearsome Five? You know, the the, not the villains that the Teen Titans fought. Oh, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with but the, the, anyway, the and then, And that guy actually was able to hold his own and even knock Superman out. And that was at a point where Superman was, uh, he was trying to juggle too many eggs in the air, you know? And, and he was just, he had a lot of confusion going on because of everything that had been going on, all the things he'd been fighting, all the stuff that was going on. He wasn't concentrating. And so therefore he got, he got his butt knocked out and his costume got torn, you know, not just the cape, but the costume itself. Yeah. Well, this, because, is, a, this is a deep powered Superman yeah. anyway, but it's think of the way Byrne handled Gladiator in the FF. Exactly. Same thing. He, he predict, you know, had Reed Richard um, surmise that his powers were, more more psionic in nature, so that when he doubted himself, they were able to knock him out. Because it was all about his focus, his mental alert, you know, how he was. So as you say, when he was unstable, when he doubted himself, his right. power level dropped. Do you know what I think inspired all of this? Superman the movie. The scene with the helicopter. In Superman the movie, when, you know, Lois lands up in the helicopter and it's coming off the edge of the Daily Planet building... Superman goes and changes. The guy comes to say, hey, Jim, that's a bad outfit. You know, and Superman goes up. Helicopter starts to fall. Lois is falling. He catches Lois, goes up, and then the helicopter comes down, and he grabs it by its, for lack of a better word, leg. All right? The strut, right. Yeah, the strut. Now, that helicopter's got away a heck of a lot. And if anything we had could possibly have caught it, it would have still broke, just sheared off from that strut and the rest of it would have fallen down to the earth. All right? Mm-hmm. On top of that, Superman flying up as fast as he was and Lois falling at maximum velocity, when he catches her, she's going to go splat against his body. But if you go by the whole electrical chemical aura and you go by what you saw with Gladiator in Fantastic Four, you know that the moment that he touched it, he was able to basically remove all inertia all momentum. So you're saying he was somehow extending his field around the, the helicopter to somehow increase its structural uh, stability. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another thing to, to, to support this. When they made the clone of him that became the Superboy, right? Mm-hmm. One of his powers that seemed to be different from Superman's was that tactile telekinesis. telekinesis thing. Yeah. No, that, that was just another variation of the way Superman's power worked. Superman had a tactile telekinesis. And even when Superman was working with the Green Lantern Corps and he used his heat vision in front of the, the, the uh, what was the guy's name? I, I keep thinking, Salak. Uh, he saw Superman using his heat vision. He goes, ah, telekinetic agitation of molecules. So Superman had all these mental powers or psionic powers or whatever, like Gladiator. But he never realized it that that's the way it functioned. He uses a physical extension of himself. Well, you could say, I mean, if you want to, I mean, look at 
the the film um uh josh trank's film um God, what is uh the super chronicle chronicle sorry couldn't remember chronicle that's all a tell you know that's all telekinesis is what the kids have but right you could say that's all of superman's that he's using that to make himself fly to provide himself with a force field to you know hold things together when he's picking up something large right that kind of thing so you could say that that's it's not physically just that he's so you could say he's not necessarily has a physically dense well in case that's the case then batman's thing wouldn't work because superman wouldn't necessarily have a physically dense biological body it may not be any denser than anything else he's just reinforcing it with his right exactly power. exactly that's that's the one the one misstep there but so uh Superman could I mean, that I, i've really derailed us haven't i <laughs> anyway uh that that panel on the bottom right looks a little sloppy to me though and that that superman's chest seems to be a little too big and distended and batman seems it, it looks like batman's trying to suck in his gut and and really jut his chest out to show, yeah, I'm just as big as you. Well, they're you they're know, they're both presenting. You know, they're both big macho guys. I know they're, they're posturing, but it yeah. just it just Superman Superman almost looks fat. It's almost like a Wayne Boring barrel chested kind of. You he know, does look a little stocky. Yeah, stocky, and and Batman again. You know, just it doesn't look right. And Batman shows him he's got his bomb. I like the panel on the upper panel on page eight that and he's all in black. That's a nice. Yeah, it makes me think of um, what Keith Giffen was doing with Batman in, in this era. Because um, if you ever read, um, and, and this goes all around the DC universe, when Keith Giffen was doing a lot of a lot of different things before the Justice League, um, and I know he had. Uh, I'm not sure if this if it came from Action Comics or if it was in his Ambush Bug runs. But he had, he had a lot of Batman. He made him look a lot like this, but even almost kind of, I don't want to say wrinkled. I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but that was the look that he had. But once again, looking at it, you can almost see that, you can almost see Bruce Wayne's face there. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really well handled. Yeah, it's a good, and it's a good, it's a good meetup between the two. It's a, it, you would think that they would take the Marvel approach and that they would instantly come to blows. Blows and Batman kind of, puts the end to that of course at least batman seems like he seems to be acknowledging that well i couldn't i couldn't stop you anyway but so this is the way i can stop you is to basically uh, blackmail you into uh helping me uh my question is why is why do you think superman okay batman superman's been around they established for about eight months now i guess i don't know how yeah how long batman's been around maybe a little longer not no not not quite as long and and I mean the thing is we know that he's at odds with the police and he doesn't have a Batmobile yet right so he, no bat signal so yeah he hasn't he's still considered kind of a vigilante yeah why is why is Superman deciding just showing up now why does he decide to uh, okay I'm gonna go catch your Batman I mean why I mean that seemed to come out of nowhere why he unless sounds was, like sounds like it was a slow news night in Metropolis and he started reading up on the stories I guess. It's, <laughs> Yeah, you use a superhero and you can hear Batman threatening somebody. He goes, oh, I guess I go pick that guy up. But That's true. That's true because it was a big threat that he threw out there just before Superman came and got him. Yeah. Page uh, nine, top, that looks – I hate this page. Uh, too much. Well, it looks very – and this may be on purpose. It looks very early Marvel, early uh, FF, the way they would take a panel and just have one solid color. 
especially with the guys of this flashback. Where, you know, the people are all. Oh, yeah. That, I, I just hate that. But see, look at Batman and Superman on the rooftop there. I mean, that looks like a stick figure drawing of Superman there with the circle, just yeah. a circle there for the head. And you can kind of make out that that's supposed to be the S, but it's just a yellow in the middle of a, of red a box. Yeah. Red, yeah. Red box, you know, look to the right. I never noticed that you see Batman's shadow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I just saw that. That's pretty cool. That's cool. That, that actually is cool. Yeah. Cause other than the, uh, the cityscapes nicely drawn, it's, yeah, it's nicely realized. It's a little, a little colorful, but again, that's what made me think of, uh, kind of early, uh, Kurt, let's see who had been coloring back early FF. I can't. I, I'm blanking on that. Maurice Severin? No, that's not right. Coloring FF? Yeah, in the early days of Kirby and. Um, oh, I couldn't tell you that. I can't. I can't. I just can't. I should know, but I, I can't think of a name. But I have to say, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of Magpie. As yeah. A, as a villain, and I, I kind of understand what. Now you said he pr- prior to this there was a bad band. But isn't this her first appearance, right? No, it, it, it came out the same month. Okay, okay. But I think this must have come out because this is her first. Yeah, this, this read, probably first came out first and then it came out probably the next week if it didn't come out the same week. And um, yeah, I mean, this is basically just to show that Batman's villains are all psychotics in one way or another, people with mental mental issues. But, you know, these people with mental issues are just killing everybody left and right. Well, I mean, we, we, know that she, we know that she kills at least, what? Eight people. Five, on the, he says eight, I think. Okay, eight we, people. Yeah, eight people. And, and then there's Bull and, you know. Other people that are maimed and disfigured. and She seems, in my notes are, her, her outfit is very 1980s. <laughs> yeah. She's, a, she's way over the top. She's a, she's a proto-joker. And I think that's done on purpose because this is an early Batman. So this is, it's almost as if Byrne wanted to play with the Joker, but he couldn't because it's too early and maybe too early in Batman's career. So he created Magpie, who's very Joker-like with all the traps she does and the fact that she's... Yeah. And this kind of uh, sense of humor she's got when she kills Bull. So, but but I didn't catch it the first couple of times I read it when he, and it's kind of jumping to the end, but I'll bring it up that he says that it's very similar to the Joker at the end of the Batman. Uh, uh, well, it's similar to at the end of Batman begins, you know, commissioner Gordon gives Batman the car, the, the Joker card and says, Oh, this crazy guy's been killing people. Give you a hint of what's to come. That's what I think magpie is. This is t- till now. Batman has been deciding he's been mil- mostly fighting street crime. You know, just yeah. thugs and crooks and burglars and muggers and rapists and that sort of thing. Then comes along Magpie, who's a, a more elevated crook. You know, she's intelligent. She's much more uh, dangerous. She's she's a, you know, a cold blood killer. She's a little screwed up. She uses these kind of tricks and really imaginative ways to kill people and, and, and things. So that is foreshadowing, okay, Batman, this is what your rogues gallery is going to become. So yeah. yeah, this is what you're gonna start fighting, even though what you started out with fighting was more street crime. Yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. I can see, and I hadn't hadn't really considered it that much. You know, I'd, sitting there thinking about the fact that how far back this is in the Batman's origins, uh, it's probably a you know a good good step. Let's take a look back on page ten because I, I <laughs> this is so funny that I didn't even think about it the first time. Um, I, or the, the when I on my reread now there's a couple Superman 
uh, not Superman, but um, John Byrne tropes here, but one that's even funnier than, than the other. Uh, the first one is the fact that in his own book, he does a flashback to an earlier page showing Batman running down bowl. Oh, because you burn burns really good about doing the flashbacks to stuff that's happened in previous books and stories and whatnot. So he's basically flashing back <laughs> to about three or four pages. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the middle of the page, he's got the, the floating talking head in silhouette and his very dark night. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think, just, uh, where is it? Write this down. The first victim, uh, Henry Gerald, the Gerald, Gerald, Jarrell? Jarrell? Jarrell. Jarrell. <laughs> I didn't catch that. But he does open his Donner Avenue jewelry. You think that's for Richard Donner? Yeah. That's yeah. That. That's hilarious. I didn't know if the other names meant anything. They didn't they didn't click with me, but uh Chancellor's Diamond Exchange or Willicker's Rare Stones and Gems. Those must be either people he knows or maybe they're Maybe in jokes into DC, if they are, I'm not. He he likes to use names from from things that he knows, so it's 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 very possible. Yeah, probably all friends. Now, in in fact, on page eleven, you've got the guy in the Hawaiian shirt. You've got the guy in the 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 shirt with no sleeves, um, and they really look like. I mean, the guy in the the flower shirt, that's almost Rob Liefeld, but Rob Liefeld wasn't even on the scene at this point. Mm But <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out who they're, you know, are they supposed to be someone? Because for some reason, and I'd have to go look, go back and look at my pictures. I want to think, I want to, I want to think Mark Grunewald when I see the guy with the, without the sleeves. I can see that. Yeah. Or it could be Marv Wolfman. Mm, I thought, Maybe. well, I don't know. I think Wolfman's got more of a bushy beard. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And I really, really hate I mean, we find out later that everything on her head is really a skull cap, that all of her hair is a wig. Oh, I hate I hate the hair. I hate the glasses. I hate what, her what, what made her, what made anyone think this is cool looking? <laughs> but again, it's burn. I think so, it's the I think it's the look bird like. I think he's yeah. done, you know, and she's got a little bag of tricks, which is very kind of to me hobgoblin like. But it's it's very much of the time. Yeah, and then page twelve, she's standing there like a Swedish supermodel. Yeah. Or, you know, dominatrix waiting to, to take someone into her lair. Well, what's funny is when when she... Where does she snick that needle from, though? She, I mean, uh, she puts her hand behind her back and then snick and there's the needle. But it's not like she's got a utility belt. Well, you think it's coming out of the glove? I mean, it would have to be. And I, and I guess that's the other funny thing. Where's the, where's that belt that's going around her? Cause like in the first panel, she's got this huge belt, which goes to her Gucci bag, but it's also got to go to, you know, it's got to keep going around her, but it doesn't. And then of course she scratches him with the needle and he's instantly paralyzed. Of course. That's how it works. Well, and you, you get the impression that this, the guy, the way he's reacting, that she's done this before. Yeah, how many well, henchmen has that, she done this to? This is actually from a Warner Brothers cartoon called Hummer Time. And no, not Hummer like we think of today. <laughs> <laughs> Neither the act or the vehicle. Um, where it was a, a dog. I think it was like two dogs. And if you can find the, the, that on YouTube, it's, it is on YouTube. You can find it where the guy's sitting there going, not happy birthday. Not happy birthday. And then they light the candles and it blows up in the guy's face. And that's what gets Superman back on track. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I just heard an explosion. He's oh, got, don't let me bore you. <laughs> this is Gotham. There must be explosions going off and women screaming all over the place. 
don't know how he can zero in on. Uh, and there's another Batman shadow that I did not notice before. And he's and the same. He's done. He's doing. He does the like the shoulders are up. It's a stylized shadow. It's not. Wait a minute. That doesn't match what we're seeing though. I know. Because everything's laying down off the shoulders. Right. So he did that twice. It's just it's almost like the like the uh, the bat symbol or the the. Well, I think if he had drawn the shoulders smooth, you might not have noticed that was. I guess you would. You'd see the the ears. But that that's really messing me up now. I mean, in the other one that was on page nine, you, you know, he was at an odd angle. It could have been anything yeah. making that. You know, you, you know, you're far enough away that you couldn't tell what would make the shadow up. But right else. here, he is like a foot away from the wall. Think is that, that is that spray paint maybe? <laughs> maybe he when Superman wasn't looking, he took out. He the tagged the wall. Yeah, he tagged the wall. It's it's possible that someone could have tagged it with the bat symbol. He's Batsky, you know? not Banksy. He's Batsky. <laughs> That's great. Now the, the 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 funny part of this though is you know Superman hears the explosion, says that you know that he hears a, a woman a woman laughing, and Batman goes magpie. She's struck again. And so he goes, take me to there, you know, leave me there. So Batman throws out his bat line. And then one minute later, they're both swooping down on the building. Now, did Superman just like wait for Batman the entire time? Like, you know, that old guy in Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom? He just paced himself. You would think that he would He'd just... He'd go fly away ahead, Batman yeah. catch up, fly away ahead, <laughs> Batman catch up, fly <laughs> You think he would, he would grab Batman's line and just basically take him over there. Carry him there, yeah. yeah. But then Batman would probably just jump away. Or you Superman know? with his telescopic and x-ray vision should be able to scan and see exactly where she's at. Of course, I guess we could we could we could explain that away as Superman is still you could say he's still maybe learning some of his powers. He's not Yeah. This he's is true. Of, he spots Batman pretty quick when he comes back from space. Yeah. Now it's it's here they are they're coming in on the the old Gotham Museum of Antiquities which has been derelict for years. How many abandoned museums could there be in the city? <laughs> well, Gotham must be uh, well the way the way Batman describes it later is uh, he really paints a picture of, of Gotham being a real dump, like yeah. a modern day kind of like Detroit or something. It's just falling apart. Like why would yeah. anyone want to live there? I don't know why anybody would want to live there. But uh, and then uh, of course on the next page we see her laughing maniacally as bull, bloody dead yeah, on the floor. It's a bull laying around and yeah. But the, the cool thing though, Superman coming in, smashing through the wall. He's got he's in the fighting pose as he's coming in, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you go to page fifteen, he just stopped standing right there at the hole that he's just made. You know, it's like he stopped to pose. Well, he is. He's like, hey, I just came through this wall. Uh, soak it in, you know. Get a feel for what I just did. And, you know, obviously the one guy's like, are you crazy? And this guy just bust through a wall, taking off. I, I think I know it's made him pause. If you look at the bottom right-hand corner of that panel, King Vitamin's crown is right there on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> or is that the Pope's uh, headdress? I don't think that's, that's not a... That's I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I think it's more likely uh, like Byrne, Superman loves rubble, so he's admiring the rubble he's created at the bottom of his feet. Ah, yes, that's it. Look what that's I have created. And then get the guy pulling the gun from his his waist and shooting at Superman. I love the automatic work that they got there. You see going back, bullets, shells ejecting, blam, 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 blam. 
and four bullets bouncing off of Superman's chest. And then oh, he just a, crushes a gun. Yeah, it's a nice effect. You can see the clip coming out when he's crushing yeah. a gun. The clip's being ejected. Of course, you wonder how many, in Superman's career, how many innocent bystanders have died due to... Uh, well, no, he's flexing. He flexes his chest muscles, muscles to, to point them in whatever direction he wants to go. Oh, you know, like a Jedi can aim a, a laser shot back at you with their oh, lightsaber. Oh, oh, is that super pectoral control? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Batman, of course, has caught the other guy. Yeah, such a coward. I mean, her henchmen are real. You know, she's not, you know, not picking the uh, cream of the crop when it comes to her uh, henchmen. Well, I mean. She's sitting there. She gets mad at Bull because Bull could have led Batman down several blind alleys. Bull is not smart enough to lead Batman down, you know, the milk alley or the bowling alley. <laughs> I mean, she no, she's not picking really wise, you know, smart people. I mean, she's getting what she can get. Thugs for hire, you know, and she's already killed one. So, you know, she's probably lost several others who jumped ship the moment that, you know, they killed, killed the one before with Happy Birthday. Well, yeah, yeah, it makes you wonder why these two guys are still here. I mean, either she pays well or they can't get another job because one, you know, once that happy birthday thing comes out, it's like, okay, I'm it. <laughs> yeah. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Turn your head. Okay, so now on, on uh, page 16, you can see her belt now. That belt goes all the way around. Yep. It's a huge belt. And Batman's cape apparently covers his entire body now. Well, he, you know, he cinches it up. Again, it does whatever dramatic thing it needs to do for the story. And there again, you see the shadow with yeah, the cape going up. Yeah. I had never noticed that before. <laughs> you know what he's got? On the back of his cape, he's got a shadow projector. Projects that. <laughs> How do you project a shadow? <laughs> well, he's got that's, something that projects that on the... Uh, that's like the anchor trying to figure out how to put speed lines on a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then she drops her little vial of Hasidic acid. <laughs> Hasidic acid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of of uh, acid gas that eats everything it touches. But we don't actually see it touch anything. No, it looks like it's already touching Batman. And then Superman sucks it all up. Now, this is the part I don't get, all right? So she drops the vial. Superman quickly sucks up all the gas and heads on out. But somehow in the time that he's left... And comes back down. She's given Batman the slip. Gotten away so quickly that he is so lost that instead he goes back for clues to try to figure out where she's gone to. And thought about that. You're right. That makes Batman look kind of uh, inept. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't planning ahead. Yeah. Now, page 17 in the, the top two um, blocks where he's gone up into space. And you can tell it's coming to early morning seeing as how he's coming up there and you can see the sun coming up over there and the horizon starting to form. But when he blows out the crystals and they come out icy, what did he do there? I mean, it looks like he used a computer that has to, to paste, be, that has to to paste to be in all of, that. That has to be some kind of early computer generated pixelation or something. I don't think he drew those in by hand. They look too. No, no. And, and, and it makes you wonder what, how an anchor would handle that too. Yeah. They were probably just, well, I don't know. Because you've got the the blowing of the air out, and then you've got the crystallization or whatever he's you know whatever it is, but it's it's almost like that the 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 pattern that he did is breaking up the what he drew, right? And it, it looks kind of clumsy. They probably put that in it, probably for the time. It probably looked cool because it was something you haven't seen before, and Burn was experimenting. But right. They probably put that in, then painted white over 
where his breath is coming out. And then, so there was probably, he may, then he might have drawn Superman in on that so that the whole thing was, uh, I don't know, some kind of early. Yeah, so they go and uh, Superman comes back down. Now, this is the other thing that makes you wonder, right? So they, Superman flew and Batman swung to that museum, right? Mm-hmm. So Superman comes back down and Batman's not at the museum. He's back at his car because it's not the Batmobile. It's his car. It's the Bat Sedan. Where is it parked? It's like it's in an alley. Yeah, an alley, an alley. But where? I mean, they were over at this museum there where they were, you know, whatever it was, it took them a minute to get to the museum. I'm just saying that this is probably blocks away down in an alley and Superman spots him like like that. Well, maybe the same way he spotted him when he first came to Gotham. Perhaps Alfred's driving it around. Maybe it's a remote control. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe he remote controlled it to where he's at. But I don't think you would have remote controlled this vehicle. I don't think it was that, uh, you know, fancied up on the inside aside from the lab I that he had in the back him, of it. Him saying, Alfred, I'm over at the museum. Bring the car over. Alfred drives it over, then gets yeah. out and takes a taxi home or something. And that, that, that is a possibility. I just It's just a little, it was too convenient for me. Well, it's either that or Superman. He just found Superman... And and it's odd that they that they seem to be working well so well together. Then first thing Superman thinks he's doing is making a break for it. <laughs> yeah, like you're not trying to leave, are you? Like, no. I, I like the car. If you look at the bottom of page eighteen, that's a really really cool looking car. Yeah, well, and look at eighteen. The way his cape is, that's yeah. kind of a hint of what the Batmobile will look like with a fin on it or something. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't even I didn't even think of that. That that's that old Dick Sprang. Yeah. Kind of uh, Batmobile. Yeah. Now, at the top of the page, though, you look at all that stuff that's in his lab. Do you know what I see when I'm looking at this? Burn tech? Not so much. I see all the little handheld video games that I had in the 80s. You know, the Mattel <laughs> football game, the little driving game, the, the plane flying game and and whatnot. And uh, I think, you know, off in the corner, they might have Simon in there somewhere. But I think that looks like a tape recorder in the top right. Well, but you, you understand what I'm talking yeah, about, right? It could be an Adam machine. I mean, this yeah, is every single thing that you could do in your iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Does your iPhone have a spectrometer built in? Oh, that's the next model. And is a spectrometer what you use for carbon dating? Uh, sure. Because apparently he's able to use a spectrometer to tell that this piece of thread is 5,000 years old. And then, of course, Superman, what, she's that old? Where do you get that conclusion from? <laughs> yeah, well, this kind of make, puts Superman as being... That's what, kind of what I never really liked about the way they portray Superman as being, I'm not saying s- stupid, but a little naive, a little. Yeah, no, I understand. You know, and, and the thing is, he's, you know, the Superman that we had read up until Man of Steel came out was the guy that had a super brain, too. Yeah. And they, they're they not doing anything to do that. They're, they're having to make him really work to think out a lot of things. So he doesn't think like a jock, even though he was a jock. Well, they make him. They seem to seem the way they want to write him is he relies strictly on his muscles, you know? his physical attributes. Yeah, not he doesn't think I mean, he, he occasionally he'll figure things out, but it's mostly through just brute strength. Uh, you know, I like it when they kind of portray him as being kind of a Kryptonian scientist, or at least maybe not on level with Batman, because I don't. Yeah, Batman is supposed to be in level with. Apparently, he's in level with Reed Richards, but I would think Superman would at least be in. Maybe not the Tony Stark range, but maybe the the Scott Lang state uh, range, or maybe a Hank Pym, or something like that. I I don't know. At this at this point, you know, they they never 
you know, having read this Superman up only up to a certain point, is that they never gave him the position where he had to be super technical, you know. And even when he lost his powers, he went on the most physical routes of trying to get them back, you know, have Starman project, you know, uh, solar rays at them or, or something along that instead of, you know, really doing something to take a good look at his cellular st- structure and figure it out. But then he, he asked Professor Hamil- Hamilton look at it rather than him doing it himself. Didn't they establish that he, in his Fortress of Solitude, that he had created certain Kryptonian, through Kryptonian technologies, either robots or, or aren't all those servants up there in the, in the Fortress his creation? Those well, I, see, I don't, I don't remember in the, the Burn era if, he'd, if he really had done much of that. I didn't read that far into it. I mean, I... You know, of course, after Byrne left, uh, you know, Kerry Gamble came on and uh, several other artists, you know, were in there, Tom Grummet and George Perez and, and others. But after a certain point, um, I, I just started to fall off on my buying. It was around the time I got married. So, was, you know, things had to change and I had to do, I had to make some choices financially. And that was one of the things that, that fell off at that point. So I didn't really, you know, see see that. I didn't see all that. Golly, you know, look at look at uh, Batman on the middle of page eighteen, and his bat ears are so high up. <laughs> they are pretty high. That I mean, but that is that is how they yeah. would have been at that point in time, at they're least actually, as, as I yeah. as I see it. They're actually protruding into the uh, talk bubble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, if you look at the top of page nineteen, the the top panel on the far left looks like Scatman Carruthers found a job after The Shining. <laughs> it does. <laughs> there's several mummies in there too, isn't there? Aren't there? Yeah, there's one too. And you know, she was at one museum and she found another museum to use as a lair. Well, this is the one she works at, right? This is yeah. the one that is, is a functioning museum, not an abandoned. I guess this is the one that when they opened this one, they had to close down the other one. Ah, okay. Well, they didn't clean out the other one though. It still wow. had crowns and stuff in it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I know. But you know, Batman and Superman come in, Superman pulls off her hair, and she breaks down. She immediately goes crazy. And it's so funny. He's just standing there holding the wig, and he's got those four panels where she just kind of crumbles to the ground. I know. I love the expression on his face there. Yeah. I hate the way he's drawn on the panel below. I was going to say that. That's in my notes. I don't know who inked that or if it's drawn. That is not burned. That is not a burn. A little bit, but it's not... They didn't know how to handle the hair. Something, but it's like it's like they it's like they started working on it and they made a mistake and they they, they went over it and it went a little higher and went a little higher went a little higher. Yeah. And then the eye the the the, the eyes just don't look right. No, and the, the some of the perspective and Batman's eyes, at least in my version, are colored pale blue instead of white. It's it's definitely shadowed as Batman is is recessed back. Yeah. But I like the way his costume is like all black there. Yeah, I love that. In, in the same panel when he first shows up and he's, he's yeah. all in black, all you see is his face until she goes, you know, crazy. Oh, yeah. And then he has to, Batman has to throw a little, uh, you know, life lesson down on us and say, well, she's, she's not really bad. Sure, she killed eight people, but she's not really bad. Yeah. I feel sorry for her, Superman, but I feel more sorry for her victims. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's it's a kind of a snide remark from Batman when he says, I, Superman says, I kind of feel sorry for her. And Batman says, you think I don't? Like, well, he didn't say you didn't. You know, don't get so offensive. And, of course, the epilogue 
On the next page, the police come from an anonymous tip to take her to a nice-shaped padded cell at Arkham Asylum. And Superman and Batman agree that their methods are different. And Batman admits that he hasn't slept in four days, which means he probably hasn't bathed in four days. Maybe that's how Superman was tracking him down. <laughs> super smell. He probably does stink. Yeah. Unless he's created super bat deodorant. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this panel at the bottom of page 21 where Superman does the not-so-fast Batman, we still have the matter of an innocent life you've placed in jeopardy. Couldn't you almost hear, like, tense music playing in the background the way Burns done that silhouette of Superman? Mm-hmm. And just Batman's eyes are showing. Yeah, you can almost, well, if you could see this, you could almost see Batman's eyes arching. Like, oh. Yeah. You know, and he's got that kind of smirk. Oh, yeah, the bomb. Let me yeah. show you the little trick I played on you, you know. And I did this oddly. He says, I knew uh, the only way I could stop you. I also knew that with your great powers, you could probably be able to tell if I were lying. Well, you were, in a way, you were lying. I think if Superman is that sensitive, I think he could tell you were doing something devious. Uh, I don't yeah, but but I mean, it was a real bomb. It was live. If right, Superman was, had gotten, yeah. it would have blown. So I mean, it was. Yeah. He wasn't lying. Now, I, I hate the coloring on that page. I think the coloring is 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 hurting the art, especially on. I mean, just on Batman. I think that blue is the wrong blue. Now, of course, it could be just a digital copy that's that way. Yeah. Because I don't remember it being like that when I was, you know, reading it back then. I don't remember it being a problem. But it sure is bugging me here. And Superman, as he's flying off in that bottom panel, it almost looks like a um, Fleischer Superman. You know, that kind of squinty, no yeah, pupils. His, his head's kind of cocked funny. It's kind of like he's looking, I don't know what he's, it's, it's, yeah, it's a little, it's a little odd. Yeah, that's that, you know, he's just sitting there saying goodbye to Batman. He's about to turn the other way and just both hands go straight out. That's just the, you know, that's my last moment. Good luck. Well, I guess we're to assume this is morning because it looks like the sun yeah. is coming up or has just come up. Yeah. Yet in the top panel on page 22, it still looks like it's night when he's pulling the, the bomb out from behind his back. If you go back to, to the top of page 21, you can see that the, the, the sun's coming up to the point where it's actually going over the buildings. Yeah. So the sun's all the way up. Yeah. It's just, yeah, just from that one angle of the Batman that made it. Yeah, that, that again, I, I don't like the way that panel is colored. The final silhouette of Batman at the very bottom. Again, that looks very Neil Adams to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, it's funny because, you know, before Burns started on, on Man of Steel, uh, I remember people that were critical of him at the time that would write things in letter pages or in the, the fanzines. They would refer to his characters as mannequins. And I disagree with that completely. And they said, well, he's just a knockoff of Neil Adams. And the thing is, in this whole book that we just read here, that's the only time I sat there and, and would look at a panel and go, okay, yeah, Neil Adams. Yeah. I think they have very different and distinct storytelling styles. And oh, the yeah. artwork is very different. If anything, I would think, if I say somebody was trying to, I don't want to say rip off, that's a strong word, but the only one that comes to my mind is Brian Hitch sound feels very Neil Adams-like. Because Byrne never went for a, that hyper-realistic kind of look that Adams did. Burns is detailed, and it, it doesn't look cartoonish, yeah. but it still looks like a comic book. I think if you compared uh, the early-day Grell to Neil Adams, you'd see that Grell probably got a lot of influence out of, off of Neil Adams. Yeah. 
And that, that's carried on through a lot of years. But Grell's also, you know, he's grown and changed in his own ways with his artwork. So it, it's very distinctive now, whereas people are aping Grell. But yeah, no, I know what you're talking about there. But yeah, I, I, I never I never saw that really in, in Burns' work. The only thing about them is that their characters were crisp and dynamic. And that's, you know, the one thing. But that doesn't mean that they look alike. No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, if if that's the case, then Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, is also you know aping Adams or whatever. But wasn't Lopez around before Adams? I can't answer that. My gut instinct says no, but I could be very wrong. Anyway, as far as the story goes, um, you know, we we found a couple things in here that didn't didn't quite add up, but it worked pretty well. It read really really quick. Uh, even though there was a lot of exposition in there. Yeah. But, and, and, and I, I enjoyed the story for what it was. I, I always thought there was, a, you could have handled them in a better way, but you know, the, the way things were going back at that time is I'm surprised they didn't just have Batman in a bad mood the entire book <laughs> because we also, we also had the justice league, but this is very, very early Batman years before he was, that Batman in the Bwahaha Justice League that was always in the super bad mood. Yeah. Who, who just seemed more serious, you know, just seemed to be grim and bitter and more serious all the time. But yeah, I thought this was a good meeting between the two. The, the villain is weak, but I understand that you don't want to overshadow this first meeting between Superman and Batman. So she's kind of there because they have to have somebody they can go after and she's kind of colorful. So she's kind of fun, but the main story is the meeting of these two heroes, how they react to each other and kind of how little contrast between the way Batman does deals with his city and the way Superman is dealing with um, Metropolis. <clears throat> I can't remember their next meeting when he's got Robin. Is that in Superman or Action Comics? That's Superman, isn't it? Was it was Adventures of Superman, I believe, because it was um – if I remember right, it was it was either Marv Wolfman writing or John Byrne had taken over the writing, but Jerry Ordway was still doing the artwork. I thought Byrne did the artwork on that. Oh, see, now I'm going to have to look it up. When he scratches his, when he gives the autograph to Robert, he scratches his name in a piece of steel. Oh, that's um, wasn't that an Action Comics issue then? Oh, that's right. And the other, uh, the other one, the what I'm thinking of was um, the one just before Superman had his date with Wonder Woman in Action 600. And uh, Jerry Ordway had done the artwork on that one. Because this one, he had, it had been, I guess it was much later, because he'd already been established himself as Batman, and he had taken, in, taken on Robin. Because yeah. Superman had some reservations about him taking basically, a, I guess, a 13 or 14-year-old along with him. Well, that wasn't, even, that wasn't just Robin. That was Jason Todd. And, in, in, you know, when, when they when they met, that's the thing. That's one of the things that bugged me is that it's not it's not uh, Dick Grayson. It wasn't Dick Grayson. It wasn't Dick Grayson. It was Jason Todd. Hmm, I'm because it. because that's what and the, and the thing was, is like it when you read um, the regular Superman stories, they're supposed to be like five, six years after the Man of Steel series. All right. So Superman had been around and established for for several years. Okay, so by but, the time you read the first Superman issue, they're both they both had been uh, doing out there for a while for about, and for about five years. Okay, so post Crisis, post Batman Year One, the first issue was actually 
uh, Robin got shot by the Joker. Batman says, you know, I, I can't have you with me because you're just going to get yourself killed. So you're fired. And that's Dick Grayson. Yeah. And then Batman catches Jason Todd boosting tires off the Batmobile mm. and takes him. And now that now the thing is there had already been a whole history of Jason Todd with Batman and, and Robin had gone off to be Nightwing and all that, that had been done pre-crisis, but they had to rewrite everything. But didn't the, the, the big run on Teen Titans that was Wolfman and was it Perez? Yeah. Is that post-crisis or pre-crisis? That's pre-crisis. Okay. Okay. So, so was there ever a, there was, well, there were Titans after post-crisis, correct? Yeah. But I mean, again, they got changed. Um, I mean, obviously, Flash was gone because he'd become Kid Flash is gone because he'd become Flash. He became Flash. So I guess Dick Grayson became almost instantly became Nightwing post Crisis. Yeah. Okay. My my see my reading of DC around that is is almost strictly Superman. Everything else around it, the DC stuff, I am woefully ignorant on. Uh, yeah, it just. That was an error that really, really bugged me because I've been I, I've been reading Batman and Detective Comics, and I was re- I, I read Batman Family and a, a lot of those books, you know. And of course, I, I would only get what I could get before comic book shops came in vogue, because you know I go down to like the U Totem, um, which was just down the street, or you know Revco or Skillerns or Town and Country Drug for the, the spinner racks. And so you just get what you can get. Yeah. And, um, it's, so the Batman stuff, um, I, I wasn't able to always get with regularity, but I had gotten like the first appearance of Jason Todd in the Robin costume, which was the, what was that rainbow or jigsaw or puzzle? I don't even remember. And it had the, the rainbow colors on it, on the, on the cover. But, um, and then of course, when they went after, you know, post-crisis um, and Jim Starlin came in and was writing. And so he did the, I don't think, I don't know, I don't remember if he did the Ten Nights of the Beast, but he did the stuff afterwards. And he'd done some really good stuff. And then he did that Jason Todd issue where Jason Todd Robin kills a guy, throws him off of a building. I mean, the guy was a rapist and a, a drug dealer and, and, you know, he just, he was horrible. It basically caused a woman to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And Mark Bright was doing the pencils on it, and I really liked the artwork at the time. But I just remember that there's one scene where the guy is on the patio, and he turns around, and there's Robin standing there. And then Batman's swinging off towards the building and sees the guy falling. (laughs) 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 And Batman gets there and goes, what happened? And Robin goes, I guess I must have spooked him. He slipped. It's almost like he's going to turn to him and say, hey, want to get a hot dog? Yeah. But, (laughs) you know... but yeah, I mean, you know, they it, it messed with the continuity of Batman and they had to backtrack and redo some stuff. And then, of course, they had the Batman year two and the year three. And year two had the McFarlane work in it. And um, I think year three was Alan Davis or, he, or I think maybe they traded off a little bit in year two. I forget. Ooh, year three is Alan Davis. I've read year one. I have not read year two or year three. Um, yeah, well, I loved it. I loved year one. I mean, even the animated version, I, I actually like the way they, they did that. Year two, year two. I don't. I, I I remember the McFarlane art, and I remember there was a romance issue with Bruce, but I don't remember a whole lot after that. And then I I, I can't rem, I, I can't remember anything from year three at all. 
I, I, I'd almost forgotten there was a year three. And then, you know, of course, there was um, the death in the family storyline, which is where they killed Jason Todd. And I, I was one of those people that dialed into the 900 number to kill Jason Todd. And still to this day, I'm ticked off and I want my money back that they brought him back. They bring everybody back. I pay good money to rub that kid out. <laughs> bring everybody back. Nobody's of, I think, I think one of the first letters, I, uh, emails I wrote into uh, Back to the Bins was uh, complaining about that. You know, I paid good money to rub that kid out and he comes back. I deserve a refund with interest. Well, that, that, you know, that's a revenue stream they should look into. Bring back the 900 number and say, well, how do you think we should take the you know this character in this direction or that direction? And have people call in. Well, make it even easier. Text in. Like they do on American Idol. You know, on American Idol, you want to vote for someone, you text their number to the, you know, whatever, you text, you know, which one to whatever number. <clears throat> I mean, they could they could do something like that, and that would, you know, you bring in a dollar per text. Yeah, they, that would, you know, that would generate some cash and might make the fans a little happier. I, again, I don't think that whoever's running either side, DC or Marvel, the comic book industry, is looking to that that industry to sit there and say, how can we make money? I honestly don't. I think that right now they're looking at a way to kill it and get find some way of keeping it alive just enough so they have that research and development for future movies. Yeah, that's how I think Marvel is using it as, as, a, as a resource now because now I, that the, the, the films have taken over, that's what's driving everything and the books are become secondary. Yeah, but they're moving the movies too fast. They're striking when it's hot. Yeah, but they see here's the, okay. In Iron Man, we have Tony Stark, you know, becoming our, you know, getting hurt, building the armor, you know, and coming back here fighting Stain. Okay, so you've taken him from the in in, in the original stories of the Vietnamese jungle, all the way to issue two hundred or two fifty, wherever it was where he had his final battle with Obadiah Stain, who blew his head off in the Ironmonger armor. All right. Now, in the next movie, it's Civil War. I mean, that's 30 years after Iron Man came out before he and Cap had the Civil War thing going. Yeah, but they're just pulling the, the big tentpole stories that, have, that they feel have worked. Right, but there are so many good stories over that 30 years in Iron Man, in Cap, in everything that they could have done. Well, just and- so- just the, like the, the, the thing is, in, in even in the animated series, animated movies for DC, they're already past, you know, uh, Action 775, is it? The uh, What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way with the Elite. Mm-hmm. They've passed that story in Flashpoint. They're not looking back to, to older stories to sit there and say, what can we make next? They're only looking forward past those points to say, which is the next storyline we're going to do? Well, they're doing the big event stories. Instead of pulling stories before they had event stories. I know. Or story and arcs, they're they're pulling the big, what were, they're doing the same thing that the, 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 the books are doing, that they have to have a big event every three or four months. Kind please, of no millennium, please no millennium, please no millennium, please no millennium. And try to, uh, try to, sh- to shake things up. To generate hmm. new, it's almost like having new number ones <clears throat> or renumbering do you, things. Do you think, you know, and then someone is doing this in their po- Fire and Water podcast, I think, is doing this. Uh, they're doing an, an episode on, on invasion. 
Do you think that they could make Invasion into an animated movie that would be good? Because that uses everybody. Is that DC? Yeah, that was D- that was DC and Todd McFarlane and Keith Giffen Invasion? did the majority of the art- artwork, I think, on that. What, what's the time period for that? That was mid '80s. That was uh, post Legends. Um, but it. Yeah, that was. I don't. I don't remember. I mean, most of the post stuff. I after Legends, there was. I mean, this is right at the time where the during the Bwahaha Legion uh, period, about like a year after the Bwahaha Legion came out. Okay, uh, before uh, kind of the Justice League. That is. Yeah. So that's again. I have that's before Zero Hour. Yeah. Before Way before Blood, Zero Hour. Yeah, before Bloodlines, before all that kind of but, nice stuff. But the thing is, they've already passed all those stories, and it really looks like they're not going backwards at all. They're not going to go back and mine that history. But the well, the but the the thing about the DC animated films are they don't seem to be in one in a continuity with each other. They seem to be kind of standalones. They could go back and do. Yeah, but they haven't. That's the thing. I mean, they've never they've never backtracked to a previous story once they've gotten to a certain certain point. What, what was the Superman Unbound with Brainiac? And that was a very recent story. That was one of the, the ones that Gary Frank was doing the artwork on, wasn't well, well, it? I mean, what would you think they would do? I mean, think of the big I, event. I'm still waiting. You know, they, they had talked several years back about doing Teen Titans, the Judas Contract. See, I could see them doing that. And they were going to do it in standard animation. It wasn't going to be like the Teen Titans Go stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, that is, that's the one I'm waiting for. And for whatever reason, they balked and they didn't make it. Well, I wonder if, because the, the main character in that is Deathstroke, right? Yeah. Right. Well, that's the character that's in Suicide Squad, correct? Uh, no. The movie coming up? And that Deathstroke? No. He's, he's not in Suicide Squad. Then who is the Will Smith character? Is that Deathstroke? Deadshot. Deadshot. Deadshot, yeah. Which is funny because he was on um, Flash last week. Or was it, yeah, was it Flash? Yeah. He was on Earth 2 as, as uh, hey, I haven't seen Iris' it yet. partner. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man, I tell you, though, I, I really enjoy the Flash. I mean, you have to you have to put your continuity cop at the door. And you do have to shut off a part of your brain. Because there's a part of me that sits there and goes, wait a second. Like like the the prisoners in the the reactor, who feeds them? Who feeds them? How do they bur- you know? In some cases, how do they breathe? How do they, you know, how do they go to the bathroom? <laughs> you know, do they have toilets built into every one of those reactor rooms now? <laughs> no, so I don't think those toilets were on the original blueprints. Probably not. You know, and I'm to only- retrofit that, you would have to hire a really really good plumber. <laughs> I'm only up to uh, the turtle episode. Oh wow. Uh, so I'm about two or three behind, and I'm I'm at least that much behind. And I get behind on Shield, and I'll catch up. But I Shield just does not hold my interest the way Flash does. Flash is just a lot of fun. Shield, I watch it because I get little tidbits of stuff, but I just don't have as much just pure fun as I do with Flash, and not quite as much as Legends of Tomorrow. Are you watching that? Oh, I'm I'm enjoying Legends of Tomorrow. Though they, you know they they've really freaked me out on some things that they've done. See, I don't know enough of DC continuity to for some probably for some of that to bother me. I, I think this is a complete departure from from the uh, from all DC universe stuff. I think you know this right here is just like let's throw it against the wall and see if it works, and it's working. <laughs> it's really working. And you know the thing is, if they didn't have, um, I, I don't even remember his name, the guy that was in Prison Break that plays Captain Cold. If they didn't have him. 
I think the show would suffer a lot. I think he he helps that show a lot. He helps, and so does uh, oh, again, back to Darvel. Victor Victor Garber. No, no, no. Yeah, but I'm thinking about the guy that Professor. plays Rip Hunter, uh, Darvel. Oh yeah, yeah, um, he's good, and, and Brandon Routh, and yeah, you know, I mean, Brandon Routh's good. They don't give him enough to do, but Brandon Routh's good in it. Yeah, and the girl that plays Hawk Girl, I tell you, she's going to be a huge star. She's cute. That, that this is this is a good starting point for her because she's going to be a huge star. I also like the uh, Professor Stein. Yeah, Victor Garber. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the first place I remember seeing him that I re- that I actually remember was Titanic. You know, but he's he's been around a long time. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, he's I been a lot of things. <laughs> it's funny. Did you ever see the movie Singles? Um, Cameron Crowe movie with Bridget Fonda and Matt no, Dillon. No, I've not seen that. Uh, he plays a Mexican in that. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just like the guy can do anything. But yeah. he, I mean, he plays Martin Stein the way I expected him to be. Yeah. If there actually was a Martin Stein. I kind of wish they had kept Ronnie Raymond. Yeah. I know why they didn't I, because they're trying to, they're trying to run parallel to the, to the book. And the same reason why I'm not all like, that jazzed about Wally West making his entrance and how somehow they're going to shoehorn him in. And is he going to be called Kid Flash? Is he going to be called Flash 2? Is he going to be is called Is he even Flash? going to get super speed? I don't know. Why, I think, why, introduce I, I, him, why introduce him if that's not going to happen? Well, no, that's that's the beauty of it. I mean, they, they don't have to keep him on the show or anything. And then two, three years down the road, if Grant Gustin decides, you know, I want to do something else, all of a sudden Wally gets hit by the lightning bolt. Yeah. Or they do a kind of a mini crisis thing with the other all the other shows, and he dies, and then this other guy takes over. Well, we know that ten years after Barry appears as the Flash is when that crisis is supposed to happen, yeah. and the Flash is supposed to disappear, according to that newspaper. So that Though could, everything may have changed already, or that could have been an Earth X newspaper for all we know. Well, I kept thinking something's going to happen with him trying to give back, trying to get. Um, uh, Jay Garrick. Jay Garrick. Can't think of his name. They're trying to give him the hit the Speed Force back, and I thought, well, and somehow that will lead to Wally West gaining part of the Speed Force. You know, it's it's funny because, uh, and I can see how they're going to do it because they brought in one of the devices, literary devices that um, Mike Barron had created back in his run on the Flash when it was the Wally West Flash. Did you ever read those? Post the post crisis Flash stories. Um, Mike Barron was was scripting the Flash, and the first uh, several seven or eight issues was uh, uh, Jackson Guice doing the artwork. And you know, some people fussed about the anatomy, but I always thought you know it was really applicable for the Flash because you know he doesn't have that normal normal guy body. For me, it worked, and I, I, I liked it. But the, the writing had some real interesting concepts with the Flash and how his powers worked. He was a guy that introduced the Flash needing to eat so much to keep up with the speed that he's producing. Which you know, to keep his body, keep his body. Right, which is something they already introduced in Marvel in New Universe with their speed. So they had in that, he had to, he was an overweight guy. And as soon as he got his powers, he slimmed down, but he had to eat. Just, I guess he had to carb load all the time because he was burning it off so fast. Yeah, but that was New Universe. Nobody read that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't still, remember that. It was DP7. I like it. It was DP7. See, I didn't read that. I only read um, Starbrand. Starbrand, yeah, but I, I, I read like one issue of Night Mask 
And for some reason, I've got three copies of the first issue of Kickers, Inc. I think that's just something somebody gave to Joel, me. You better put those away. Those are a gold mine. <laughs> you put your kid through college with those. <laughs> yeah, if he's going to the toilet paper you. <laughs> oh, my. Now, of course, this um, has been reprinted a couple times in a bound volume of The Man of Steel. When The Man of Steel was originally released in 86, they made... Uh, a number of bound copies of the six-piece miniseries, and they gave it out to people in, the, in a drawing. Hmm. And so those trade paperbacks are actually worth a good bit. Though I think they're bound in in either that nice vinyl or, or leather. I'm not sure. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, it's been reprinted as part of the, the Man of Steel uh, series as Volume 1. Uh, this is actually, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, the first appearance of the post-crisis Batman. It's my first experience. It's my first exposure to post-crisis Batman and pretty kind of my first Batman because I really wasn't reading any DC until I came over to DC when Byrne came over to do Superman. If you read the the early to mid-80s Justice Leagues, uh, Jerry Conway was writing it and George Perez was doing the art. But um, the Batman that they did there is note for note like this Batman here. Um, I, I really like the way they handle that. And this is after Batman had gone through like a neurosis where he was, you know, like, how can I be a superhero if I don't have any superpowers? Yet he kept saving the world, <laughs> you know, uh, but that was, you know, just a, a common thing going on in Justice League at that time. But if you can find those those Justice League issues from that period of time, they're just fantastic. I think I may have some of those. I know I've got digitally all the uh, Brave and the Bull. And I don't know. I haven't read any of those, but. Ah. Now, the, the Justice League uh, around that time, that was actually the first experience that I had with uh, Apocalypse and Darkseid because they had a uh, crisis of two Earths where the Justice League and the Justice Society were having one of their get-togethers. Yeah. And instead of the, the Justice Society and them meeting where they're supposed to meet, boom, they wound up on New Genesis and everybody was gone and they found out that Darkseid was coming back and... They, had, they, they all had to get together and fight them. So it was like the first time I'd ever seen Darkseid, Orion, uh, Mr. Miracle, Oberon, and Isaiah the High Father. Mm. And just, of course, it was um, the first issue, I think, was actually Rich Buckler of the story. But the last two chapters were done by George Perrins. And, but they were all beautiful. So that's pre-Justice League Detroit era. Yes, yeah, there was a there was a, a good number of issues there where uh, it was funny because in this point in the eighties, um, Perez had been working on the Avengers regularly. Yeah, when David McClaney was writing it, and then he would go to DC and he'd be doing Justice League, and of course that uh, you know Jerry Conway was writing it, and this was at the point when Marvel and DC actually wanted to get together and have a JLA uh, yeah. Avengers. Uh, combo story and Jim Shooter and I'm trying to remember who it was he was supposed to be working with they they you know George Perez had done uh, a number of pages and you can find them online if you look around enough and they uh, actually printed them I think in a wizard magazine or uh, a comics insider one of those um, of of the work that he did but because the the writer and the editor couldn't agree on a whole lot and they kept arguing about certain things like like somehow they wanted flash and quicksilver to power up the cosmic treadmill which would be impossible 
because Flash can run the speed of light and Quicksilver can run 170 miles an hour. And and so, you know, stuff kept going back and forward. And, you know, it's basically a large flamestorming game and it never did happen. But you can look back at that time and you can see that uh, the artwork is just like, oh, yeah, that's Perez doing that and that's Perez doing that. And uh, it was it's really cool if you can find the pages. I'll have to see if I can track those down. Of course, we, we did get finally the JLA Avengers crossover book that Kurt Busiek wrote and Perez did the artwork on. And that was, it was kind of like a, a Crisis 2 yeah. to me. Well, there's and, also the, the Uncanny X-Men Teen Titans, correct? Crossover. What? That was what? And it, Uncanny X-Men and Teen Titans? Well, the X-Men Teen Titans uh, crossover came out in like around in early, early 80s, uh, 80 or 82. And that was Walt Simonson that is most beautiful uh, doing the doing the artwork on that. And um, I think Chris Claremont did the whole story and he hit both sides note for note. He had every character down, both on the Titans and on, the, of course, the X-Men. Oh, yeah. So, I, I mean, that was that was just one of those great synergistic gestalts that just really, really worked. That was probably up, up to that point, definitely the best of the DC Marvel works together. Now, I, I think after that, um, when you sit there and you look at the other things that have been done, the Batman Captain America that Byrne did, that I'd really like to cover one day here, was pretty cool. And that's what inspired uh, Generations. Yeah, and that's on our slate to cover sometime. Yeah. We just don't want to pile up too much Batman. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and then and then uh, Byrne had also done... Uh, Dark Side versus Galactus. Yep, I've got that. Which is just a fantastic piece of work with a great, great ending. But, you know, there was that, the, the first couple of, of team-ups that they did was, you know, Superman and Spider-Man. And to me, you know, putting those two characters together is, I just, I just you know, never see it. You know, and, and those stories were what they were for the, for the time. I remember the first one, um, Spider-Man got juiced up so he could actually take on Superman, actually outfight him because he still had his spider sense and everything. Yeah. And well, then the second one, it was against the, Do- Dr. Big Doom. Tre- you talking about the big treasury edition, the oversized comics? Yeah. 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 Well, there's a Batman Hulk. Batman version. Hulk, yeah. Though I really liked in the second the second one that Jim Shooter wrote um, with Superman and Spider-Man when Superman actually had to fight the Hulk. Because, you know, he's sitting there, you know, the Hulk is just smashing up everything. Superman comes in, knocks him into a building, bunch of stuff falls on him. Superman goes and thinks he's got him, pulls one slab away, and all of a sudden, big green fist comes up. Stupid puny cape, man. And Superman goes flying to the other side of the of the river, comes back, and at that point, he's kind of ticked off. And then the Hulk can't hurt him at that point. The Hulk just, you know, I mean, he never, he didn't hurt him. He just, you know, knocked him around. Right. But at this point, Superman just decides, no, no, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let him knock me around. And just like the Hulk is pounding for all intents and purposes, a brick wall and having no effect. And then Superman realizes it's a little flying electronic gnat that's bugging the Hulk that's making him angry. So he, he gets rid of it, calms the Hulk down, he turns into Banner. And then Superman kills him. Well, somebody should have. <laughs> I mean, the cop, the cops were there. They could have shot him, but no. Oh. <laughs> All that due process and everything, you know. <laughs> All right. Okay. Do we want to wrap uh, this up? Because this is going to be a heck of a long um, episode for us. But I think we covered some good stuff. And I don't know what. I have an idea what I want to do for next. But 
I'll talk to that off air because I don't want to keep people in suspense. You have any uh, any uh, final words or final notes or something you want to plug or get off your chest or <laughs> get off my chest? Uh, no, no, not really. Not at this point. Hey, I, I I do appreciate all the good birthday wishes, you know, from everybody. Hey, I do have something here though, and that was, um, you know, we haven't been getting emails. Uh, we did get the one review on uh, on iTunes from from David Thompson, mm-hmm. also known as Blue Bullet. And after our uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens show, he actually wrote uh, a couple of points of discussion about that show and posted on the Facebook. And I wanted to go ahead and share that here and see if you wanted to say anything about it. Uh, point number one. The new Trek movies are following the same path as Star Wars The Force Awakens, big action, easy plot, and simplified characters. In my mind, these are not the best of Trek with complex characters, ethical dilemmas, cultural norms, and avoidance of battle. The point of Star Trek is the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, and not necessarily a specific crew. Okay. I, I, you know, I see what he's saying there. He's, he's trying to say that Star Trek is more than just Captain Kirk and crew. And I agree, because otherwise... DS9 wouldn't work, Voyager wouldn't work, Enterprise right. wouldn't work. So, yeah. But I, th- I think what he's missed here is, you know, okay, J.J. made the first two Star Trek movies of the, the, of the new series, and J.J. made Star Wars The Force Awakens. But what we know about J.J. is that while he gets Star Wars completely. He doesn't get Star Trek. He doesn't get Star Trek, no. He just basically looked at it and said, okay, you got the big seven – Here's the big ship. All we got to do is get them in battle and have them get out of it. And Scotty will find a way out of it at the end. But he didn't. No, he didn't get Trek. Not like not like so many of us do. And so now he's not really directly involved in Trek. Simon Pegg wrote the script, and I I got a lot a lot of faith in Simon Pegg. I, again, looking at the trailer, I think that that the producers just took every bit of action that they could find to throw into the trailer to keep the current audience that they have. I think that us as true Trek fans are probably going to get something more out of this one than we got out of the last two. And I'm saying that with my fingers crossed. Yeah, I hope so. I, I, I don't have any faith in it. I think we're going to get pretty much more the same. I think. Yeah. And I don't know how one, I don't think, I don't know how much clout peg would have to, change it much i mean they're going to go with what works and what sells and they don't they're not they don't they are not going to want to deviate from that plan so i i'll go see it but i'm i don't have a lot of faith in it and i don't i don't know what the you know i've heard the rumors of a possible tv series but i think that'll be based on the jj verse of star trek not anything well now that the that that show that's coming out it's going to be a star trek web series all right, put on CBS web uh, web service, whatever it's called. And the showrunner is Brian Fuller. Now, Brian Fuller uh, was the showrunner of Hannibal and a couple of the shows that have been on recently. Brian Fuller also wrote about 20 episodes of Voyager, several episodes of Enterprise, and even an episode of Deep Space Nine, if I remember right. So he should have a grasp of what Star Trek is. He's got a grasp of what Star Trek is, and he's got a genuine love for it. He gets it. And he also knows how to write interesting characters, which uh, which I like. So I think that that, that show is going to be in good hands. Now, if it's going to take place in this new continuity or the old one, don't know. I don't think it matters, though. I, I think that, you know, what we're going to get, though, is probably going to be fresh. 
if it it could be a standalone. It could be take place in its own in its own continuity. I don't know. I don't. I yeah, mean, I already know nothing other than just what I've heard. Now going back to his um, message here, uh, this is uh, David Thompson, Blue Bullet. Uh, point two: The Wrath of Khan works so well because the tension built through the history relationships between the characters. The end battle, as you pointed out, wasn't about power, but strategy. And yeah, I was making the complaint in um, the about uh, Star Trek after uh, Into Darkness, in that you know there wasn't any point to strategy because they just had a much more powerful ship in that in that dreadnought or whatever it was called. But you know the the thing is that uh, the tension and everything was based upon the history that Kirk had with Khan. And right, there's no there's no history between uh, this Kirk and this Khan, Khan and this Khan. They don't know each other. Right. So no, I, again, I, I wish that they, that he had not been Khan, that he had been somebody else, you know, like someone from the future or something else. But anyway, uh, moving on. Number three, I, I hate this uh, this line that he writes here. The new current Trek isn't for us. It's for the next generation of fans. I don't know if we older, more seasoned fans will ever like revisiting on films existing characters played by new actors. Our memory is firmly in place of who and what the characters are. And I, I, I got to disagree. I got to disagree. Look, it's, you know, the, the, when you sit there and you say it's not for us, you're just saying it's not for you. And I can, I can understand that and I can buy that. You know, Scott Gardner has, has talked, you know, multiple times about how this Superman is not his Superman. And I look at it and I see things I like. I see things I don't like. My son loves him. And yeah, he's that next generation. But the thing is, is that, is that I know people older than me that like the new Superman. It's, you know, the thing is we all make our own choices. And, you know, we decide what it is that we like or don't like. Or we feel what we like and what we don't like. And, and you, it's hard to change how you feel. That's for sure. Now, Right. And there's no well, – Honeywell just posted a, a bill bit on Facebook, which nice little – article, not article, but blurb, about your opinion that, you know, there is no wrong opinion. If what, it's right. your opinion, it's, and, it, and you, and you shouldn't be looked at, looked down upon for what you do like or don't like, or if you don't like, you know, if you're not with the norm and, and going with the crowd and what everybody else wants. So Superman, this Superman, the incarnation is not for Scott Gardner. He has his own Superman. Now, if it's your Superman, that's cool. There's nothing, you know, it doesn't mean he's right and you're wrong or you're right and he's wrong. It's just, it's. Right. And, and recasting the crew. Well, you know, when I was a little boy, <laughs> it's funny. I watched Bewitched. All right. And they had Dick York playing Darren. Mm -hmm. And he had back problems and he had some other, other issues going on with him. And he quit. And so they recast him. And it wasn't the first time that that's happened on TV. We've had a number of, of characters get recast. Um, and the shows were able to continue on with the, with the new cast members. And it really didn't, you know, make a whole lot of difference. Um, and when it comes to the movies, you know, I, I don't want to sit there and watch a, a, an 80-year-old Captain Kirk trying to fight a Klingon. I mean, I keep thinking of that Simpsons spoof, so very tired. <laughs> And we're not going to be able to recapture the magic that we had of the original, but we are going to be able to get some other kind of magic, whether it's, you know, new actors or new, you know, just a completely different crew or whatever. It's possible anyway. 
But, you know, the thing is you have to decide whether or not you're going to give it a chance. Yeah, and I think – I don't know if he's saying not to give it a chance. I think it's just he's saying that there are – you know, I can find part, I can find the things that I like in the new, the new Star Trek. Uh, it usually is outweighed by the things I don't like, but I won't dismiss it outright and say, no, I'm not going to watch that. I, it's not what I want, and, and but I can find things to enjoy it. I think the wonderful thing about Star Trek is – because it's created such a vast landscape of this this world building that you could you can but that's the same reason why DS9 worked and again like I said like Voyager and Enterprise same reason why Next Gen worked because it takes place in that same world the same ideas the same kind of mythos but it doesn't have to be the original characters so you could create a new Star Trek show that takes place it could be in the future it could it could be someplace, you know, maybe it's concurrent with Next Gen or DS9 or even Enterprise. It doesn't matter. What, what about that Peter David series, uh, the, the the book series that he did were – was it New Voyages? Voyages. Shelby was first officer and, I mean, they had characters from several other different stories that were uh, – that were in there. And I, I, I thought that was an interesting crew. I didn't necessarily like the what, where David took it. Um, completely, but I did like the the characterizations he had, especially of the of the captain, because that was definitely a guy that that really lived further on the edge than even Kirk had lived. Yeah, well, I so. think it, it, at its core, Star Trek is an a set of ideals and a way of telling stories. It's not Kirk and Spock and Bones. I mean, that that's what started it, and those are kind of the the grandfathers. But that's not. It doesn't have to be them all the time. So you can tell stories in the Trek universe and just using the same races, the same, you know, it's a Federation. You can just tell lots and lots of interesting stories in the Star Trek way about exploration, about exploring, you know, the human condition about exploring. It's not just shoot 'em ups and spaceships. And I think that gives you a lot of playground, a lot of room to play in, but you don't have to you know, redo the original seven. You don't have to read, you know, uh, I just want to see something in that universe. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I remember someone, uh, and I've heard it described several times, even on, on our previous shows that someone described JJ's track as his star Wars movie. Yeah. It was like a demo reel for star Wars. Yeah. But my, my question about that is why is that a problem? I mean, even bad Star Wars is pretty much better than a lot of the other crap that's coming out. Uh, you know, not um, the prequels notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, no, I don't, again, I don't hate the prequels, so uh, I'm not one of those that, that sits there and is down on so much. They're not necessarily my favorite Star Wars. Yeah. But, but like, you know, like when you're sitting there comparing that Star Trek to Star Wars, it, it kind of makes me wonder what you're saying. Well, the same with the new, with The Force Awakens. And I can... That's the same thing. You can tell a story in that universe. It doesn't have to be Luke and Leia and Han and Chewie. You can tell stories in that universe, and they can be just as good. And it's nice to revisit the same character sometimes, but sometimes it's just nice to get little, little hints uh, of throwing a, a, a reference to something that kind of lets you know, yes, this is the same in the same universe. So you get to do a lot of different things. And, you know, there, there were things in The Force Awakens that I didn't, Particularly like I thought didn't feel like Star Wars, but I think also you have to look at where Star Trek was. Look at 
But look at Hollywood now and the way movies are produced and the type of movies that are produced in Hollywood mm-hmm. are very different than they were, say, 15 years ago. Yes. So not only is if you were even try to make maybe this is going to sound stupid, maybe Hollywood wouldn't accept the type of Trek movie that was produced with the original cast. Everything now is faster. It's a little more dumbed down. It's more action centered. So I may, I may well, be you know, the thing is, is when you sit there and you look at the Trek movies, there's one thing that you can see in, in, in going from Star Trek one to Star Trek five. And that was that every movie down the line, the budget went further down. All right. So they had uh, an untold amount of money that went into Star Trek, the motion picture, just because it was originally slated to be a TV series and they were trying to get everything put together. All right. But they also had all that crazy special effects they did for that one as well. Then you had Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which was a very tight, efficient movie put together very well. They reused a lot of footage from the motion picture. So they were able to do it on a much, much smaller budget, but it did show. Star Trek Three. once again, they filmed a lot of stuff really dark and stuff, and they did so much in studio. There was no location shots uh, really, you know, done. And Star Trek Four, to save money, they came to modern day. Yeah. And again, you know, save more money. Star Trek Five. boy, writer's strike, everything else that was going on at the time, next gen, filming on the next stage over. Uh, just, but again, a, a pretty low budget, you know, it wasn't until Star Trek six where they actually gave them a little bit more money than they had on the previous movies. But up to that point, the budget had gone down and that was the, that was the, the, the way they did it with movies and sequels. That, that was the business model. Look at, look at yeah. the ape franchise. Yeah. Or, or Jaws. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. Talking about diminishing returns, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, although Jaws two, I like quite a bit. Uh, I don't. No, it's no Jaws, but <laughs> Jaws Two is no Jaws, but I I like Jaws Two for what it is. I mean, I'm 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 a fan of it. Jaws Three, I watch kind of ironically, but yeah, the Ape franchise started out, and they just it's it's uh, oh, we're g- you will give you less budget, but we hope we hope a larger return, and which is opposite now of usually Hollywood because at least the way the business model is now because well the thing is with Apes though is that. They didn't know that they were going to make a sequel. No, they had no and they, idea. And they never knew after each one that they were going to make a sequel. Why do you think they blew up the earth at the end of the second one? Oh, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, they, they never knew it was going to be on the next one. <laughs> well, they that was a yeah that was a situation where they, they, they produced a, a nice little, uh, I think, a very uh, a great science fiction film, and then it just became bigger than what they expected to be. And then, of course, a cult, it was a cult phenomena. That's what it was. Yeah. Mark, I'm sorry, David Thompson, he's got one last point to make. And that is, uh, he just read John Byrne's Star Trek New Visions, The Hollow Man. Weird coincidence, huh? And actually enjoyed it very much. My only complaint is that I will, oh, okay, I wish Byrne would have drawn the ship's environments and then had the graphic designer convert to digital. The clunky computer design panels took me out of the story. And I got to agree with him on that. Um, even as, especially his later issues in the new visions as he's building new structures and everything. And he's, he's pulling from his imagination as he's doing it. I, I think that the, the program that he's using is rather limited and it's, it's not translating well to the book. Now, what he's doing with the characters though 
is very George Lucasy because he's moving them around and reusing, you know, other things. And he's changing facial expressions. He's changing the arms and legs or positioning in, in a way that you can't tell that he's done it. And it all looks very natural unless of course he's trying to hide Harry Mudd's face. He's doing a lot of cut and paste. It, it's basically like cutting up, cutting yeah. him just out of a magazine and moving around. But you know, I, yeah. I, I got to respect his use of, he's got this new toy he wants to play with. So he's not, drawing anything he's using all computer generated so it, you know, it looks a little rough i still respect his need to want to try to something different and sticking to it uh that's the the last that we have from um david thompson there Th- david uh thanks for your message there and please anybody if, if you can uh take a few moments to write us a little note whether you send it to us at our email address gotta get burned at gmail.com or you find us on itunes we're on our, we have our facebook page we have a Facebook page. We got Twitter. We got well, what else do we have? Uh, we got about we, a, we got about a three-hour show right now. Yeah, we got a three-hour show. Yeah, um, but uh, you know, again, please, anytime you go to Amazon.com, be sure to use the link at the top of the True True Freaks page because it helps keep the light on, lights on. Well, for uh, Third Degree Burn, I'm Brian Hughes. I'm the Dark Knight. I'm Batman. No, I'm Elliot. I can't say I'm Superman. It just, I'm Superman. I'm Superman. You just say it. I'm Superman. No, you got to understand, over the years, I was the one that was always compared to Batman. You know? I had other friends that were compared to Superman. I was Batman. You can be Batman. I've got a Batman denim jacket, you know? I've got like 37 different shirts with the bat symbol on it. I've got three shirts with Superman on it. Don't get me wrong. I love Superman. But I've got the Batman shirts. He was the guy I was compared to. I don't know why. I was never rich. My parents were alive pretty much for most of my life. It, you know, I only lost one of them recently. And it wasn't to a mugger. But, uh, and I never, you know, vowed any kind of vendetta to, to scare the living crap out of all criminals. Though that would be fun. It's a lot of swinging around on ropes. Yeah. Anyway, I guess I got to go. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to y'all soon. All right. Bye. Leave Sam out of it. This is between you and me. We don't have to do this. Sure we do. I am Kalel, son of Jorel, born on the planet Krypton, raised here on Earth by Jonathan and Martha Kent. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman. You're just a man with no superpowers. You're right. I'm just a mortal with only his wits. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. 
Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to tutufreaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows. Until next time, this has been Third Degree Burn.